Hey, hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Phil Drysdale Show. This episode is our episode with Laura Anderson. I'm so excited that we are finally here. We had to postpone it a couple of weeks. Um, Laura has been working on launching a very exciting new initiative. Um, I know that she's very excited about it and I'm very excited about it as well. And I think that you are going to be quite excited about it when you hear about it as well. It's a, a fantastic initiative, really um, helpful resource for uh, many of us out there that are navigating religious trauma. And so hope you enjoy this conversation. I, I hope you do check out um, the, the different resources that Laura's um, putting out there and involved with. Um, she's a, an incredible woman, really uh, well-versed in religious trauma. We, we go into a whole host of stuff today and I'm really excited to do that. Before we start, just wanna remind you, the Deconstruction Network is a completely free resource to help you connect with other people that are going through deconstruction in your local area. So check out the deconstructionnetwork.com. And if you wanna support what I do and help me continue to create free resources and work with people day in, day out in their deconstruction for free, um, everything I do is for free. I'm always here to help you. Um, but if you wanna help facilitate that being free, you can become a patron over at patreon.com slash phildrysdale or phildrysdale.com slash partner. Join our private discussion community. We have video calls and voice calls and all sorts of other uh, great perks um, for those of you that want to help me in the, in the work I do. Um, that means a huge deal. Of course, there's never any need to give. We've all been through different experiences within our faith traditions, but many of us have been burned hard by people that are trying to grab our money in a whole host of different ways. And so I will always be completely free. You will always be able to reach me on Instagram at Phil Drysdale. Um, so shoot me a DM if you ever need someone to talk to. You'll always get my resources completely free here, podcasts, YouTube, um, different uh, avenues, websites, Instagram, TV. And so um, please enjoy those. Never feel you have to give. But if you want to help support me being able to do that full time, um, I can't work another job because I do this full time. Uh, your support is a, a huge deal and means a great deal to me. All right. Enough rambling. Let's dive into the conversation with Laura Anderson. All right, Laura, I'm excited to have you on. Why don't you um, maybe give like a little bit of a preamble, a little bit of a blurb of who you are. Uh, a lot of people will be very familiar with you that are following me. I think we have a lot of overlap. I've shared a lot of your stuff over um, the last year or so. Um, and they'll probably know you through the Religious Trauma Institute as well, yeah. which um, a lot of people have been introduced to um, through Brian, who I've had on my podcast, but also again sharing the amazing yeah. stuff you guys are putting out on um on instagram and on other platforms as well it's, it's amazing yeah. but for those that have been living under a rock <laughs> certainly on instagram um sure. tell me a bit about yourself um you know who are you what are you doing why are you doing it and we can dive a bit more into that but yeah yeah well yeah laura anderson that's my birth name you know been living that for a few decades now um i am um, i'm a professionally i'm a licensed psychotherapist in nashville tennessee i have a private uh psychotherapy and coaching practice and the coaching is what allows me to see clients from everywhere um and yes, yeah, so I, I actually see a lot of religious trauma, but I specialize in complex trauma, which I truly believe religious trauma falls under. And so within complex trauma, I focus a lot on domestic violence, sexual violence, and religious trauma. Um, yeah, and I have, I, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, I thought, oh God, like nobody's going to want to come see their therapist. They're going to mm. be saving money. They're going to, you know, whatever. And um 
I'm not unique in this, but everybody's going to therapy and it's been crazy. And I think even the correlations between um, religious trauma connected to the pandemic in various ways, whether it's messaging or political figures or whatever has really caused a lot of triggers, a lot of feelings of crisis and panic. And so I've seen my caseload um, explode exponentially, which is a wonderful problem to have, but also, you know, I can't help everybody. So I'm like, I'm so sorry. You can go on my wait list. Um, But there's just so many people that are, that are looking to get support because of everything that's gone on for uh, the, the roaring twenties, truly. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I, that's kind of my, my day job. Um, I'm also finishing up with my PhD, um, like okay. looking at like a couple months from today, you wow. know, um, Fantastic. what's morning. your, what's your PhD um, focused on? Yeah. So it'll be a PhD in mind, body medicine. Um, I wanted a little bit different route. I'm a very integrative clinician. And so I, um, I, I love everything, very eclectic. And so um, this seemed to fit me. Um, the My dissertation topic is the experience of living in a healing body after sexual violence or sexual trauma. So there's a lot of research out there about symptoms of, you know, sexual trauma or even like therapeutic modalities around sexual trauma, but there's not a lot of research out there on how do you know if you're healing? Like, what are the markers of healing? Mm. Um, you know, especially with, with, um, when I started my PhD was right around the time me too was really surging. And then of course, church too came after that. And it just felt like this really relevant topic that we've there's all these people that have experienced this sexual trauma and have had to hide it and suppress it for such a long time. And there's, there's already great resources out there. And now, now that it is more um, available to be talked about and it's, it's not taboo, um, we've got to start looking at other heal, like other ways to, to talk about healing. You know, Mm -hmm. is it, sexual trauma impacts a person on so many different dimensions as does, all trauma. Um, but I, I focused on just this slice of it. And so looking at healing is this multidimensional process as well, that mind, body, spirit. Um, and so, yeah, so I'm, I'm doing that. Um, I'm using my own story and my own journals as uh, data, which is uh, really fun and super vulnerable, but right. I'm yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what is being put out there. And as it pertains to religious trauma, um, I also get to weave in the the messaging from things like purity culture sure. and how that really had an impact both on my own experiences with sexual trauma, as well as it being its own trauma unto itself. Um, and mm. so, um, yeah, so I'm really excited about that because I think it there's a, there's a growing niche in research on purity culture in particular, um, and then religious trauma as a whole. So yeah, so that's rambling, but that's my PhD. And then of course, the Religious Trauma Institute, which you already mentioned, um, that I co-founded with Brian Peck. So um, I'm really pumped. We, we met yesterday. Um, we've got a website rolling out soon. And so we are talking content and colors and all the things. And so that's just been, um, Brian has been such a wonderful colleague uh, to work with. We we met on social media a couple of years ago now, and we just have such a similar vision and passion and 
um, kind of ideas of how we want to help people. And so it's really wonderful to partner with him as well as many other people um, to try to to try to provide resources to people who have survived religious trauma through educating therapists and clinicians mm. and advocates and clergy members and all the people that we're trying to be able to target and reach out to. So that's like my preamble, like you said, of who I, I am professionally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there is, there is so many different things we could talk about. I um, and I am, I'm like a kid in the candy store when someone gives me too many things. I'm like, yeah. oh gosh, where do I begin? I do not even know. I am salivating at all the options, but I do not know which which candy to pick. Um, there's so many things there. I, I mean, I'm so intrigued by, by so much of the work you're doing. I love the work that you are doing with the Religious Trauma Institute and um, I, 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 you know, I know that you're gathering different researchers and, and people that are involved uh, in research to, to try and, um, you know, collaborate and, and do work together. And um, I, I've spoke to so many people that are starting to do research in the area of religious trauma. It's, it's a bunch of people, a bunch of um, grad students and, and master students and stuff have reached out to me going, I'm doing my paper on like, you know, religious trauma. or I'm doing my paper on purity culture and how it affected me. And I'm, I'm researching different people. Can you put me in touch? And I'm like, this is amazing. There's so many people. And I imagine you get this way more than me even because you're actually going hey if you're doing this please talk to me um and so it it seems like um yeah we're on a precipice really because i mean trauma as a whole is a very new area of of conversation really um as far as the age of these kind of conversations go i mean psychology is not a a, a, it's a pretty new discipline trauma within that is a very new discipline and then you whittle it down even further and go oh like a religious branch within this i mean Mm -hmm. People barely started talking about this in the last few years. Um, yeah, well, and even within, so we've got trauma as a new field, new field or whatnot. But then within that, as the research has progressed, is this whole like I know Brian's talked to you about this like body based, like really like somatic processing, as we understand how our body and our nervous system holds trauma, and and then how that manifests itself internally and externally far past the event, and so. Yeah you know, trauma research started off with trauma as an event. It was the war, it was the car accident, it was the sexual assault. And now we're realizing that's actually, that's not the trauma. It's the, that's, that's the thing that happened, but trauma is the, how our body, how our nervous system responded to that. And so that, Mm. that in and of itself then is even newer. And, you know, I think, you know, there's a couple people that put um, put it on the map. Judith Herman, she, her research is amazing, and she, her uh, big book, Trauma and, and Recovery, was out in 1992. And we've got Peter Levine, who does somatic experiencing, who had a lot of his work out like about five years after that. Bessel van der Kolk, and so these are kind of the pioneers. Mm. Stephen Porges with the polyvagal theory. So we're talking like early early to mid 90s when these pioneers were like, hey hey, how we've been talking about trauma for the last 20, 25 years, not right. (laughs) Let's shift. So it's like course correct. And people in psychology are just not great at changing. And so, (laughs) so, you know, it's finally, I think even with social media, I think we're starting to see more therapists, professionals, and then clients who are starting to have a better understanding of trauma. And then of course, let's now put religious trauma in there. Yeah. People are really starting to have, uh, to understand religious trauma is trauma, the same way sexual trauma is trauma, the same way developmental trauma is trauma. And and that just gives so much more than um, access to resources and to effective care, um, which 
excites me as a clinician and a researcher um, and yeah. as a, a a victim of all of that as well you know like I'm sure very yeah these resources got a lot more skin in the game as well where you go gosh oh, yeah. i would yeah. have benefited a lot from having this at that time yeah. or you know being able to access these resources or people yes or, yeah yes. absolutely that's yeah. huge it feels yeah. like I, I think I mentioned this when I talked to Brian, but the parallel, I, I, I know I've got trauma in my life largely because I can't remember most of my life. So that's a like sure. fairly yeah. big trigger there, a warning yeah. of like, oh, maybe there's a red flag there. Um, so yeah. I know that I've got good stuff going on there, but I, I'm yet to kind of really figure out even how to begin to tap into that. But um, the overlap I have is is I see, I, so I live with chronic pain and, and some of the components of this are so similar. You know, the way that we've thought we understood how things work. And then in yeah. recent years, very recent years, we've gone, oh, yeah. pain doesn't work like that at all. Yeah. Um, yeah. Things like, oh, any pain can actually be quite a significant pain. Even pain that isn't linked to an injury can actually right. be just as severe or worse than a pain linked yeah. to an injury and, and things. And it's amazing how we see these different um, sufferings um, coming yeah. out through the body in different ways, yeah. in different um dimensions one of the things i'm fascinated by trauma is i mean with it being such a new kind of um thing that we have language to put to it mm-hmm. i feel like there's maybe um there's maybe a tendency i've seen for people to um presume trauma is everywhere um right it's almost like a, a charismatic preacher looking for devils in every bush you know and yes. um, and i yes. feel like um I feel like we're probably seeing once you've got language for something, you suddenly are like, oh my God, this thing is everywhere. And it, I think it is everywhere. I think it's so many places and so much yeah. further reaching than they are. And I, I, I'm sure you could probably talk on that and flesh that out a bit. But I wonder, do you, do you also see um, potentially um, an over um, diagnosing of trauma? Because that's, that's something that I've been observing. And I think I maybe even talked to this a little bit about with this Brian. So you have to forgive me if I overlap, but I think this is such an important thing. And I want to hear everyone's angle yeah. and thoughts on this. Um, but I, I'm really intrigued. Do, do you think that trauma is as um, extensively kind of um, interwoven in our society as, as it seems to be, as some people are suddenly getting language and going, oh my gosh, I've yeah. got trauma. And oh, you've got trauma yeah. as well. And so do you. I mean, yeah. It's possible, but then do you also feel that there's a tendency for people to jump on a new diagnosis or a new yeah. kind of category? And can you yeah. talk about that? I know that's a terrible question. I just rambled no, about the topic I'm without asking like, the actual question. <laughs> I'm thinking of like that's five different roll. <laughs> we can go down. And so, yeah, like I'll try to kind of go down a couple of different paths. And sure. interestingly, I literally just wrote a post about this the, I don't know, a week or so, or posted a post about it a week or so ago. And it was kind of like, <laughs> I mean, my short answer is the reason I struggle with the statement that everybody has trauma is the same reason that I struggle with everybody is a sinner because it can mm. become an excuse and a justification. It can decrease um, survivors, you know, access to help and to care. And well, that's just that person. They're just a sinner or they're just a trauma survivor and they have their own stuff. And so it is far more nuanced than a yes or no Um but I, I likened it to that because of what you're saying, you know, like, well, everybody has trauma. That's just their trauma. That's just their trauma. And I was like, that sounds so familiar to how I grew up. Well, they're just a sinner. They're just mm. a sinner. You have to forgive them because they sin too. So I, so put that out there. And then the other thing I think to take into consideration is for such a long time, trauma wasn't a thing. Like it wasn't on the map, whether we're talking research or being accepted within society or academia or in our clinical settings. And so then we start to get all this research that's coming out. And, and now like 
good research and like anything, it's so easy to swing to the other side of the spectrum and kind of like, instead of like severely underdiagnosing to maybe like way over diagnosing. Um, and because there is a very real aspect of like, I don't know what's going on in anybody else's body other than my mm-hmm. own. I don't know how your nervous system is responding. I also know that how your nervous system responds to something may be very different and it may be traumatic for you and not for me. And so I have, that's why it can't be this like real, yes, like, yeah, it's way overdiagnosed or underdiagnosed or, or whatever. Now I do think that there, it's worth having some conversations around, um, what, you know, like there can be big events that happen that feel overwhelming, that feel intense, that feel uncomfortable. And that does not equal trauma. (laughs) It might not feel great. We might even go into a fight or flight response. Mm. However, if our body has a chance to come back and find a sense of safety internally, and hopefully even externally, it doesn't linger on in our nervous system as trauma. So I think that that's maybe where the educational piece is missing a bit is this recognition that like, yeah, legitimately um, pretty much anything could be considered trauma. Just like there is no one thing that absolutely is trauma. Um, But, but to say, you know, there's some very well-known like Instagram therapists that will say, well, if your parents didn't listen to you, that's traumatic. Could it be? Mm -hmm. Yes. Are there times that every parent doesn't listen to their kid? Yes. Does that mean we're all traumatized? I don't know. I Mm. I don't know. Um, Because was there repair that happened after that? Possibly. And if there was, the likelihood of that leading towards trauma may, may be much lower. Was it constant? Was it, was it also in tandem with other things like neglect and abuse and abandonment? Then perhaps we are looking at something that is uh, leading towards trauma. So th- I don't know that I can give a succinct answer. I, I think at some point we'll kind of like anything even back out and that's going to come through additional research, additional experience, um, people starting to know how to regulate their nervous systems and, and whatnot. Um, but I don't know that I can give like a very succinct answer to that. Does everybody have trauma? Now I'm going to, now I'm going to like totally, um, discredit, I think, what I just said, because I think there's also excellent research out there um, that talks about like intergenerational trauma, mm. um, which kind of I bristle at because it reminds me of like intergenerational sin, <laughs> which I'm just like, Ugh. you know, um, but I, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Resma. I think you pronounce his name like Menachin or Menachan. Um, he writes the book called uh, My Grandmother's Hands, where he talks, his work okay. is all around um, white-bodied supremacy and um, and racism and how and oppression and how that does weave into our DNA and is passed mm. down through generations. I don't discount his work at all. It's excellent work and um, very much agree with it. So I don't know how to meld that all together. Um, it's maybe far more nuanced and complex than what this what what my opinions could ever be or what this conversation could hold. But I do think that there is something when we look at, you know, things like patriarchy and various forms of oppression and racism and whatever, and, and how that plays out through the generations, that might, maybe that makes us more prone to trauma. 
uh, to those traumatic responses. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I, that's like another branch of research that's somewhat new, but incredibly fascinating. Um, sure. Yeah, I don't know if I answered no, your question. These are all wonderful. like 50 more questions. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I get this a lot with people will talk about the podcast and I'm like, you are terrible at asking questions. And I'm like, yes, check. I know. Um, and they're like, and 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 then like, you don't hold your your interviewers ask, answering exactly. And I'm like, yeah, because they usually say something way more interesting because they know much better than I do. And then we go down that rabbit hole. But I think yeah. you did a really good job because I think, first of all, it's such an amorphous topic, right? And, yeah. and I guess I, I'm wondering, so again, linking to something that, you know, we're talking about internal um, uh, sciences here. We're talking about soft sciences. Uh, soft science is such a looked yeah. down on and snubbed kind of a uh, phrase, but but we're, we're basically looking at where, the, where science is, is often focused on the external world. You can look at it, observe and go, that is a five out of 10. That is 30 centimeters long. That is 500 milliliters. When you look at something like pain, when you look at like, how are you feeling? When you look at going, what's that trauma response like? I can never know until you communicate on some level. Maybe somehow we'll one day get an amazing, strong enough fMRI that somehow yeah. can tell what that movement in the brain means. But who knows, right? Because everyone's yeah. brain's wired differently. And I mean, it's just going to be, who knows? Maybe that's like a few hundred years out. Um, do you think there, there, how do you go about, you know, trying to navigate this sort of thing of, well, how much trauma is someone experiencing? What, what, you know, maybe, yeah, everyone is experiencing trauma on some level, maybe yeah. absolutely through some sort of generational exposure. We all have certain traumas that are caused by these institutional, you know, um, systems that oppress us and, or, or oppress other people and, and position us in a way that probably is traumatic just to be in power mm -hmm. in some weird ways as well. Um, yeah. you sort of these things, but maybe for some people that's more of a minor trauma that doesn't particularly cause them to have huge trauma responses every day to all sorts of things in the same way that if they were attacked as a child and didn't manage to kind of conclude yeah. that situation they're constantly on edge do, do you do you see there being ways to measure how severe trauma is i, I know that um when I talked to Brian about, you know, the research that you're trying to put together, you're looking at like scales for trauma and things like that. Does, does that play in? Is, is that something we're going to be able to do to be able to look to someone and go, oh gosh, they have severe trauma and look at someone else and go, yeah. oh, they have trauma, but it's probably not going to impact them as much. Like, is that possible? Maybe. <laughs> uh, maybe. So, you know, the, the thought that comes to mind is, um, the kind of the natural ramifications or consequences of trauma. So again, I don't live in your body. You don't live in mine. So we can witness the exact same thing or experience the exact same thing and how our nervous system responds to that could be bigger, smaller, you know, more intense, less intense, and neither is right or wrong. It just is. Um, and and I could have actually a very small response, but have no access to any sort of resources. Maybe I don't know mm. how to regulate myself or whatever. And so then perhaps the consequences are much larger, whereas you might have an in the moment quite large response, but you know how to access internal safety or a, a safe, secure connection with another individual who can help kind of bring you back down or, or whatever that is. And you go, I'm actually long-term good, you know, like that, that's fine. And so, you know, one of the things I, I remember talking about this on my uh, Instagram page 
this is a long time ago. So whenever I post about purity culture, I get a lot of, <laughs> a lot of pushback from certain people. And mm. I made the statement, something to the effect of um, people who are coming out of purity culture often um, have the same process of healing as individuals who have been sexually assaulted got a lot of pushback on that. How can you claim that purity culture is sexual assault? You're taking away my experience, which was not the intent of the post. I literally just said, oftentimes the process of healing is like it, not, you know, not anything more than that. But one of the examples I use as we're explaining trauma is, um, there maybe when you're young, you see somebody streaking down the road naked and it's very overwhelming for you. And um, your body goes into some sort of fight, flight or response, maybe connected to how your parents responded to it or connected to messaging that you had. And you have a very severe response to it. And it might actually equal somebody who has been sexually assaulted, has the exact same response. Now, the consequences of that might look different. So the things that the, the person who has potentially been sexually assaulted, their, their healing process might be a bit more in-depth, intense, overwhelming, long-lasting, whatever that is, than this other person. But it doesn't invalidate, was the trauma better or worse? It yeah. just means my body had this response. And so I hesitate to say greater or lesser trauma. Sometimes in the psychological world, they'll call it big T trauma versus little T trauma. Mm. To me, anytime that we're comparing traumas, that brings on so much shame, which mimics trauma anyways, that I'm like, so we're just literally making it worse yeah. for ourselves and others by putting comparative labels on that. What if we took that off and said, you know what, there are some experiences that will probably naturally have more things that you have to work through, um, but it still may be experienced as trauma in your body the way that you know, the same way somebody else experiences something for something that would traditionally have less consequences associated to it. So yeah. I, I feel like that's the only answer I can give to that question. Yeah. Um, because everything I, I've, I've said for years now, like trauma is subjective, you yeah. know? And like you said, I, like, I can't deny your pain. I'm not in your body. So I don't right. know what your pain is like. Um, and I, I can't sit here and say, well, I don't, the way you're describing your pain is not the way that I would describe my pain. Mine sounds so much worse. And it's like, I, I can't say that. I have no idea. Right. And so I think trauma is very similar in that we can't, we cannot determine what it feels like in somebody else's body and nervous system and then how that mm. externalizes or manifests externally. Um, yeah. yeah. Wow. <laughs> it's, it's such a complex and tricky thing, isn't it? Because oh, I yeah. guess the, the tendency to look at the event and compare them, I guess that's the, that's the external sciences suddenly, isn't yeah. it? Right? It's like, well, we can look at how many bullets were shot in your direction versus, yes. you know, like, or, you know, yes. how many times were you sexually assaulted versus, yeah. oh, you weren't sexually assaulted. Yeah. You were just exposed to a very um, traumatic ideas yeah. about sexuality or oh that's much less than this or it's yeah. a very it's a very um uh, reductionistic way yeah. to approach something yeah. um and yet we know that doesn't work right, right. even for pain you know you yeah. can experience no injury and um, there's a famous story of a guy in australia who shot a nail gun through his foot and he got airlifted by a to hospital for a helicopter and they were pumping him full of fentanyl one of the strongest yeah. painkillers possible he wasn't even passing out he was he was literally just pouring with sweat screaming non-stop they eventually like 
managed to cut the boot off, they get the boot off, and between his toes, the nail had gone and hadn't even scratched his feet. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And yeah. yet, you could, you know, yeah. you could probably put a nail through your foot and not be in any pain because, yeah. you know, maybe you're going to shock or, you know, whatever. And so exactly. the point being, you look at the external thing and go, oh, a nail through the foot is much worse than no nail through the foot. But yes. actually, the no nail through the foot was a worse outcome for someone yeah. to experience. <laughs> exactly. um, and, yeah. and so I think it, you're right. It's such a subjective thing, isn't it? Um, yeah. And I think something I've come across and I've... I, I'm really bad at this. I hate correcting people, uh, mostly because I'm not that confident anyway, or usually because I'm too confident and I think, Phil, you're just going to be an asshole about this. <laughs> um, but but I've seen quite a few times recently people talking about that is just a traumatizing theology. That is just a traumatizing idea. Yes, um, I... So someone mentioned the other day um, something about uh, hell, I think it was, and yep. they were just like, well, hell is just a traumatizing concept. And I, know exactly and I, and I kind of pushed back softly and I was like, well, to be honest with you, it never was a traumatizing thing for me. I, I, I'm sure I've got some trauma somewhere, but that one I've evaluated a lot and I never really was massively traumatized by yeah. that. Um, and yet I work daily with people that have been, I'm not yeah. saying it isn't, um, but I just, the idea that certain things are or aren't traumatizing. Yeah. Do, do you have, how do you begin to try and, you know, you, you talk about purity culture and so many people that go through purity culture experience, um, these complex, you know, traumatic, um, responses and yet so many don't. And so how do you begin to deal with that? How do you begin to talk about this? Because with something like sexual assault, we go, well, yeah, that's bad. So let's just yeah. stop sexual assault. So that would be yeah, a yeah, good, yeah. like, let's deal with people that are already traumatized, but maybe we could stop traumatizing people. But with mm -hmm. something that's a bit more complex, that some people don't respond to in a traumatic way. And actually, yeah. maybe even it, it actually helps them. And it was a very yeah. helpful process for them. I'm not here to judge that. I, I'm, I'm going to say I have my thoughts yeah. on that. But yeah. for yeah. you are saying that's a helpful thing and it's shaped you and given you purpose and right. you know, it might even help you deal with trauma. Maybe mm. your concept of hell might even actually help you go through some very traumatic concepts, right? Sure. I don't Absolutely. know. Yeah. How, how do you begin talking about these kind of complex topics that may or may not be traumatic? How do you yeah. go about addressing them? Yeah. So, you know, one thing kind of, and I'm going to tie this back to kind of that last question that we were talking about mm. is, you know, this idea of like uh, the, the nail through the foot. So like one thing we can do with, with data, with research is we could say that likely um, somebody is going to experience more long-term impacts if their arm gets sliced off versus if they get a paper cut right? We have research to back that up. Yeah. Now we don't, we can't say indefinitely, it will always be worse if your arm gets cut off versus a paper cut. Cause maybe you got a paper cut and there was some, you know, mold in there. Who knows? Right? right. So we can't say that, but we can start to recognize that certain things may tend to lead towards a specific outcome, but we just, it's, it's that we can't say that absolutely will happen. Mm. So, you know, I can't, I don't remember if you and Brian have talked about the, um, like adverse religious experiences and kind of how we're framing that. And one of the things that we've talked about is what we think we'll be able to say is like, Hey, if you've had some of these, like they, they don't equal trauma, but, but if we start compounding them on top of the other, the likelihood that your body might experience that as trauma could increase, right. right? So that's about, in my 
opinion, and I think I can find research easily to back this up, like that's about as far as we can go because of that trauma and subjectivity and how, how trauma actually works in our body. So then going back to this message of hell is traumatizing, purity culture is trauma. I understand what these people are saying. Right. I, I've seen a lot of those messaging too. And I, like you, cringe and I go, oh, we can't say that because trauma, like I said, is subjective. It is embodied. It is subconscious. It, it's all these things, but it's not in the event. It's not in the teaching, right? Because um, <laughs> that's why we don't fear teachings from other religions, because right. who who cares, right? So the trauma isn't in the teaching. It's not in the belief. It's in the way our body, our nervous system, like embodies that, responds to that. So I would say, how do we combat this conversation is we have to have an accurate understanding of what trauma is and what it is not. Um, and, and that is this recognition that it is our nervous system's response to the thing that happened, but not the mm. thing itself. And so to your point then, one person may have had, um, you know, a, a very terrifying experience with the teachings of hell. And then you have another person over here whose parents mentioned it by the by, but they went to a really progressive church and they, you know, whatever. And you, and you go, so, and that person isn't traumatized. So you have to look at that and you go, so that the trauma can't be found in just the specific thing. It has to be in our body's response. So I would challenge anybody who says this is always a traumatic thing or teaching or belief or whatever. And I would say, I think it's likely that if that's what you're taught, it could very easily lead to trauma or to, to um, living with trauma, but to say, hell is traumatic is a traumatic teaching or a belief in hell or uh, purity culture is trauma i just that feels very fundamentalist in a way right <laughs> right so so then what if i'm not traumatized by that thing does that mean i'm not wrong my experience wasn't wrong or maybe i'm living in denial and i'm not actually seeing this or i'm impacted and i don't know it and um it's gonna come out later in life well I mean, maybe but like no like maybe you just weren't impacted by it. I, I have a, a good friend of mine, a couple, I'll use a couple of them. Like two of my good friends went to the same church growing up, taught the exact same things, had, but, but internalized them in such different ways that the unpacking or the healing that they had to do looks looks like they went to two different churches and two different religions and two different upbringings. You know, my one friend over here is like, I mean, that's stupid. I'm not going to believe that, you know? And my other friend who's sitting next to her in youth group is like, this crushed me. This devastated me. So I go, I just, I can't get on board with this idea that this belief, this doctrine, this theology, this, what this event is, unequivocally trauma. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, and you know what? I understand when you've been traumatized by something, it's very That's hard worse. to um, break yeah. break that up and, and be in a place where you can take a step back and be like, oh, actually, it's not this. It's, it's this yeah. over here. And, you know, like, and, and I'm not here and I'm sure you're not here to go, whoa, 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 you need to figure this yeah. out. Like, but 
I do think there's potentially a lot of um, potentially a lot of fallout from doing stuff like that. Like you're saying, people may be doubting their own experience. I certainly, when I first started um, coming across, like, you know, so many people that were trauma-informed and, and teaching on that, and I was like, um, and they probably didn't even say this belief is traumatizing or that, but I internalized it that way. And I was like, oh, where's my trauma? And I'm, I'm looking for trauma. I don't particularly see trauma. What's going on? And I'm like, oh, maybe I, maybe I just need to look harder. Maybe, you know, yes. whatever. And, um, and that just wasn't a helpful, you know, yeah. introspective yeah. dive for me. Um, maybe that might be a really helpful introspective dive for some people. And they might go, holy crap, there's some trauma there. I need to go speak to Laura yeah. or someone like that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, but probably not you because you're on your wait list is through the roof right now. <laughs> ridiculous yes um, that'll be changing yeah. soon so uh, there's another yeah, yeah. project i'm working on with that so yeah, <laughs> yeah. but um, yeah absolutely yeah it's it, so there's lots of these things so i guess you know we talked you mentioned there you know there's there's these um adverse experiences and, and brian has mentioned these in passing we've not really dove into these in yeah. a huge way and so maybe it'd be quite interesting mm -hmm. to unpack these yeah um, do, you, do you want to do that first before i ask a question because i'd love for you to unpack that and so you'd maybe inform my my question before i ask a really yeah. dumb question <laughs> Um, well, but can, let me can you ask, define the he, difference? Yeah. Has he ever uh, kind of read our definition of what we, we call adverse religious experiences? I can't remember if he's read it on this. I podcast. don't recall him reading it. Um, if he gave it, it was off the top of his head because I don't recall him reading one. Um, Brian is a yeah. wordsmith and does amazing with this. I, he probably has <laughs> I don't. So I'm actually just scrolling on our Instagram right now. I'm going to grab that um, because I think no, it's a good. great it's a great starting point to kind of have. So this, mm. this definition, it is one that we are building off of, but this is something that we collaborated with the Reclamation Collective on to create this definition. And then as we're pushing the research forward. So the way that we kind of our baseline, where we're starting from is that an adverse religious experience would be any experience of a religious belief, practice, or structure that undermines an individual's sense of safety or autonomy and or negatively impacts their physical, social, emotional, relational, or psychological well-being. So that's like a whole mouthful. And you're like, oh, so again, it could be anything. Yeah, pretty much. Um, <laughs> but um you know, we, we've kind of gone back and forth. And I think now that we have the collaborative research group, uh, this will be able to be kind of fleshed out in a bit of a different way. You know, one of the kind of one of our inspirations was the ACEs study, the adverse childhood experience. Hmm. Oh, we're back. Uh I lost you for a bit. Sorry. Do you want to oh, jump this back? This is so, my internet connection. Okay. Sorry. You're fine. You you are back. Um, and so you, yeah. you just broke up when you just mentioned the ACEs study. Ace, yeah. ACEs. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, you know, ACEs is the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, and it was pioneering. It still is one of the most widely known and well-researched studies that, um, has done a whole ton of good for things like developmental and complex trauma. It, the way that the ACEs study is set up, and, and I don't know that it would be set up if they created it today, if it would be like this, but they basically have 10 categories of kind of different things that could have happened. Everything from physical abuse to, you know, sexual abuse to a parent with a, um, an addiction or a parent with mental health issues or 10 different categories. And it was set up to say, like, if you 
if you know, you can score one to 10 based off of how many of these categories you fit in. And so likely the higher the ACE score, the, the more likely that you would be to uh, suffer from developmental trauma, which, you know, kind of would be evidenced by these symptoms here. So um, we've thought about going about it that way of having categories of, you know, psychological, relational, social, spiritual, physical, mm. you know, sexual, like, here's kind of, you know, if these were kind of your experiences or these were your beliefs or whatever, and we start kind of compounding them on top of each other, the likelihood that it would result in religious trauma may be greater or lesser, depending on how you would score. That was the original thought. I'm not sure if we're going to still go that direction. And I think a lot of it's going to depend on kind of how the collaborative research group goes and where they want to take the research at an individual level and then get it back to us or whatnot. So that's, um, really adverse religious experience, a lot of people don't identify with the term religious abuse or spiritual abuse. Um, it's that term kind of um, feels really heavy or really connected to say like clergy sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. And so they'll say, oh, I didn't, I didn't have any sort of religious abuse because, you know, my, my youth pastor didn't sexually abuse me. Um, and that's true that, you know, that, that it didn't happen, but it doesn't mean that there weren't other harmful experiences. So this yeah. was our way of being able to kind of expand the conversation a bit and to say there was, there was these harmful teachings or practices, these harmful um, or toxic theologies, these uh, ways that you had to live your life um, or think or feel or interact with others that had very specific outcomes or net, you know, kind of detrimental adverse outcomes. And so that's kind of where we're like sitting with it right now. Um, I'm sure Brian's mentioned like this survey that we've done. And I think we have mm. over like 2,500 respondents to it. And, and what it's indicated has been like, as a result of, you know, having adverse religious experiences, I think that top three are shame, uh, powerlessness and fear that, you know, that is the result of having wow. experienced an adverse religious experience or more um, and being able to see that as, as detrimental and, and shaping of the way they see themselves or the world. So mm -hmm. that's kind of a long rambly, you know, what is adverse religious experiences basically because outside of the definition we haven't done a lot of succinct research around it. It's just coming. Sure, sure. <laughs> yeah. 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 Wow. That, that's, that's fantastic. That's just really interesting and very helpful. And, and coming from a bit of a research background as well, I, I feel you on new areas where you're trying to be like just defining initially yeah. and then trying to figure out, oh, do yeah. we even hit the def definition when we start to like look at that? And you, you have such a lot on your, on your plate. I, I will say I'm deeply envious. 2,500 uh, responses is like, amazing you know you've got a lot of data there to play with um yeah but yeah no that, that's that's really fascinating and so i think knowing that difference is so huge though because i mean what you're describing there with a the religious adverse experience mm -hmm. like you said almost anything can become that on some level and you li listen to that list and you're like yeah i bet you i've had a few of those i've had a few adverse experiences yeah. but realizing yeah. oh but that's probably what it was it, it yeah. that doesn't necessarily mean i have some yeah. deep-seated trauma let me yeah. look at that does that come up again often do i do i've got yeah. stuff in my body coming up every time yeah. i think about that or every time a similar scenario comes up or yeah. uh, like those are two very mm -hmm. different experiences yeah. you know yeah. um, and even that they can be really negative like it's not to say that when you think about that, you don't get flooded with, you know, mm. upset or remorse or regret or, you know, you can have a lot of negative of response to, to looking back on that or to reliving that on some level, but mm -hmm. it's still 
is different to trauma potentially. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I think it validates all, all experiences as well. Right. So, oh, well, I don't have religious trauma. So I guess that means I have to maybe discount these things that mm. happened, or maybe it wasn't so bad because it didn't lead to a result of trauma. And, and I think giving that language helps us understand that like, no, you may have had some really harmful or adverse or abusive experiences and, and them not leading to trauma does not make them any less valid. Um, and, and it probably means that, you know, there, you could have other outcomes from it. It could be, you know, attachment related things or anxieties or depressions that, that may not be religious trauma, but they still are impactful and they still are things that you're dealing with. And so I think when we can expand that conversation a bit, it gives, it gives people language to understand like, what the hell happened to me? You know, like, why is it that when I hear worship music, as I'm you know, flipping through radio stations, my heart starts beating. Does that mean I have trauma? Well, maybe, but maybe not. Maybe it's that, that was, you know, it just, it reminds you of another time. And that was, it was a really painful time that, you know, that maybe you've grieved that time, but it still is painful, you know? And so I think it, it allows for people's experiences to be validated um, as well as like then giving language to understand why, why these compounded experiences may have also resulted in something bigger, that that wasn't just um, in a box or in a vacuum, that, but that there was a long lasting effect similar to de- developmental trauma that, yeah, may, maybe witnessing my parents' mental health issues and addictions, that, that was just my normal, but that helps to understand, oh, well, that's why I, I move into the fawn response so quickly. And that's why, you know, I repeat these behavioral or relational patterns or whatnot. So yeah, I think it just starts to expand as well as validate um, the experiences, the very real experiences that people have had. Yeah, I think, I mean, we live in a golden age for this, right? I mean, oh, the, yeah. certainly, I mean, the next moment is going to be the the moment on earth that has the most yeah. information available to us and the best research available and yep. all that. And then the moment after that, we'll have a whole bunch more papers published and whatever else and more therapists around to tell us how to heal. And and so it does feel like just being alive today, we have so much more at our hands, you know, um, recognizing. So I'm somewhat on the ASD spectrum somewhere. I don't know. Um, But that was not an option for me as a kid growing up. That just, I mean, certainly in in a lot of my schooling was kind of more rural as well. So even if it was on the table, it probably wasn't where I was. And, and, and I only in the last couple of years looking at it and going, Oh, wow, this is why I'm like this. And being able to look back in my childhood and go, gosh, Mm. poor Phil, no wonder you were overwhelmed by this. No wonder you felt like, you didn't want to do it this way or, or you know, whatever. Cause I'm like, geez, like I'm a grown ass yeah. adult and I don't want to do it that way. And when I struggle with change, like poor, like 11 year old Phil or eight year old Phil. Um, and so it's <laughs> things of like, it gives a context. So doesn't it? And in some sense, I think that provides um, some capacity for healing. Just understanding uh, does an amazing yeah. Yeah. Um, job and, and, and creates an amazing window. Um, yeah. And I guess, you know, there's so many amazing therapists out there that are doing wonderful work in 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 healing people that are mm-hmm. working through their trauma and giving them tools and and helping them process and explore. Um, yeah. I guess my question is, and I've I've read different books about tra- trauma and different things like that, and I, I probably am like one of these people that is, knows enough to probably do no goods, but knows enough to now not do any. Uh, <laughs> 
more harm, hopefully. Um, so yeah. somewhere in the middle. I've not done enough to get to the point where I can help myself too much or others. Um, but I do wonder, can can people work through this themselves? Can, is there, it, you know, because trauma, I mean, we're talking some deep-seated yeah. stuff, right? I mean, it's just really in there. And I and I do wonder, um, most of the, the practices I've come across, most of the um, stuff even that people are researching just now, even with things like, oh, here's, we're looking at ketamine or psychedelics. Those are have incredible potential, but they're not okay. like here, eat these shrooms, you'll be fine. They're like here, eat these shrooms and we're going to sit and walk you through one hell of a journey. And this is going to be yeah. a rough one. Like, yeah. So it's still very much like, hi, professionals are here to guide and to assist. Yeah. And so things like that make me wonder yeah. to what capacity, to what degree are people able to self um, heal and, and walk yeah. themselves through this journey? Because honestly i mean if nothing else in america where you are guess what free access to therapy not a thing uh, right i mean maybe, i know reclamation collective are doing great work in helping try and make things more affordable for people and put them in yeah. contact with people that have more sliding scales and things yeah. like that but at the end of the day a lot of people just don't have access yeah. to um, be able to have someone walk them through their trauma do you have thoughts on yeah. how accessible walking yourself through trauma is and, and maybe some tools or ideas of how people can even yeah. begin to think about that? Yeah. You know, okay. So I am a huge believer that the body, we have what we need within us to heal, but we sometimes just don't know how to access that. I think that's where a therapist can come into play. And so this idea of self-healing in one way, I think is incredibly empowering because it, it lets you know that like, I, I, I can do this. Right. But I think at the, you know, the, the other side of that coin is that there are people that are trained to, to do this. And I'm not saying all therapists are great. They certainly aren't. There is some very trauma uninformed therapists. There is some therapists that should not be therapists. Like I, I certainly don't think that, um, that simply going to a therapist is like magic cure or whatnot. Sure. I think that we are getting really good at um, making certain resources accessible, easily accessible even through books, through podcasts, through social media, through YouTube and these sorts of things that are that are great places to start and great places to, um, yeah, just develop your own knowledge about trauma. And I, I direct people, I mean, I kind of have my go-to list of resources and I'm like, all right, if you can't afford therapy, you're going to start with this book and then you're going to move to this Instagram account and then you're like, whatever, whatever, whatever. I think one of the things though, that having a therapist can do, I mean, I think there's a lot of things, but trauma so often happens in the context of relationships mm. and as a result, we often isolate, we often go inwards, we often just live from a place of shame, from hypervigilance, from freeze, from all these things. And, and it feels like relationships are like the last thing that I want. You know, if I've been harmed mm. by somebody, why would I, why would I want to engage in that? But there's something about a therapeutic relationship that offers a different kind of ability to heal, like it, that we heal in the context of relationships as well. Um, and there, there is something really special about a trained, a, not just a trauma-informed therapist, but a trauma-trained therapist that can help you regulate yourself mm. and, and get even more in tune. Um, like, for instance, so um, 
I, I really like somatic experiencing. I think Brian's talked about it too. Both of us yeah. are in training to, to be somatic experiencing practitioners. I both, and I think both of us, I can't speak for him in terms of how long, but we both have been going to somatic experiencing therapists for quite some time. So I, I knew of this idea of trauma, but I was like, Oh, I don't know. I don't know if I, if that's me. I'm, now I'm like, of course it was me. Like, like, yeah, very clearly me. Um, however, um, before, way before we got to any of the trauma processing and resolving the trauma, I think I probably spent close to 18 months developing a relationship with my therapist mm. that I had never really had a safe relationship. I had never been modeled how to have conflict with somebody and it not drag me into this shame spiral, you know, and I'm afraid I'm going to go to hell. We, I had, I just, I didn't have access to some of that. And so it felt like, oh my gosh, I'm like, I'm going to therapy and I'm paying this person to like be in a relationship with me, you know, to like to be there for me. And yet it wasn't until my, that was established and, and my body even trusted that relationship that, that, processing could actually happen. Um, fast forward to my current therapist and I've done all this work around relationships and being in my body and all this thing. And, and, um, it used to take me 12 to 18 months to like really feel safe with somebody. And yet this, now this therapist that I'm working with, I like, I cry every session, which to (laughs) me is like a huge validation of safety that my body actually feels safe enough to cry. And it happened from the very first session. And I don't think it's because she's some magic wizard or whatever. It's that I was witnessed like that, that pain, that grief in me was witnessed in such a beautiful way that allowed me to heal in a way that I wasn't even, I didn't even really know that I needed. Um, but that then deepens me into other work. And I have the luxury of being a therapist. I know how to do this work on myself and I do it on myself a lot, but there is something different when there's somebody else in the room who's Mm. catching me going, hold on, hold on, slow down, slow down, drop back into your body. What's going on right now? You know, Mm. and there is something really special about that. So I think self-healing is wonderful. I think that the resources available to people are exponentially increasing and they're good, really good resources, but I think you can't discredit the relational aspect of it. And, and you know what, it, it could be that you have a really safe, stable, solid friend or partner or something that can offer that to you that knows how to help you stay grounded. So I'm certainly not discounting like that as well, but I do think that if there is availability and access to a therapist, um, that can just show up and, and help you just, come back home to yourself or, you know, kind of lead you or guide you or help you develop some coping skills. Like there is something really powerful about that. Um, and this is like a little, uh, a little soapbox I get on to, but therapists get a bad rap on Instagram, like a lot mm. and sometimes for good reason. Um, you know, cause we don't always have the corner market on 
healing, you know, but there is something to be said that, you know, a lot of us have done a lot of school, a lot of extra training have spent buco bucks and time, you know, trying to really do this. And we are the only profession, I think, where our profession, like our experience, our education is devalued in favor of um, just get a good friend, you know, like I could read several books on oncology and cancer and integrative treatments. I am not qualified to treat your cancer, <laughs> right? I've yeah. got hundreds of haircuts in my life. I am not qualified. I should not cut your hair. It would not be good, right? <laughs> I leave that to the professional. And so it is interesting, I think, and maybe this only happens on social media. I don't know. But I do see people being like, just get a good friend. Just, you know, and, and in some cases, that is exactly what needs to happen. Mm -hmm. I'm not discounting that at all. I also just want to kind of bring light to this idea that like there's a lot of therapists who are so passionate about this work and who spend so much time, money, money, energy, effort, not only healing themselves, but pouring that back into other people. And while the letters behind your name don't always matter, there is something to be said uh, for the work that therapists can do with you. So that's yeah. my little rant. Uh, but yeah I, I, yeah, I don't know if that answered the question. <laughs> no, it's, it's great. It's, it's amazing. And, and, yeah, I mean, there's so much at play here. Uh, and, and yeah, a lot of people can't access therapy. A lot of people, if they prioritize, it could, you know, sure. they really could. Yeah. Uh, and I think, I, I mean, I fall into that category where like, you know what, if I cut out all the different things I really enjoy every month <laughs> that I probably don't need to do, or if I bought a few less books, I could meet up with a therapist every two weeks or a month yeah. or something. You know, yeah. so it's, it, we, we all, you know, um, have different give and takes, but some people cannot do that. And, and I think- yeah. Yes. saying it's not possible I, I think you know like you're saying yeah. it's of course no the body is amazing and, and you yeah. can resource and you can access these yeah. things but saying it's going to be easier or easy probably yeah. not right I mean it is going to be yeah. easier if you get a, a successful person on, on your side yeah. you know uh, yeah. and that's it's just a, kind of obvious generally speaking yeah, I, would, I would have thought but in a way that's that's the therapist like being the guide right so you know <laughs> I, I'm prone to this too like gosh, when I realized here's all this trauma, I wanted to dive in, like cannonball into it. That is not the way to deal with trauma. I'm going to just put that out there. Like, I know everybody's subjective. We all have different things that work to us, but cannonballing into it almost never works, right? I needed my therapist to go, okay, we're going to pick you up, <laughs> come back out of the pool. We're going to dip our toe in, you know? And I was like, oh, are you kidding me? But yet that was the only way it was going yeah. to heal because I was re-traumatizing myself by cannonballing yeah. in. So I think that idea of like therapist as guide and, and my clients, they laugh at me. I, mean, I think I had this conversation three times today. I was, they're like, why aren't we going faster? I'm like, I mean, well, we had this conversation six months ago and I said, sure, go faster. And what happened? you became so overwhelmed, you know, and, yeah. and it's reminding ourselves like our body, we have to go at the pace of our nervous system. Yeah. We have to, um, sorry, my, my little dog is just licking herself. Uh. Over here. Um, we have to go at the pace of our nervous system. And sometimes we just don't know that to yeah. begin with, you know, especially, you know, these, uh, capitalistic societies that value productivity over everything else why wouldn't we just jump into trauma and yep. completely overwhelm our nervous system and go as fast as we can um, and then do a lot of harm to ourselves in the, in the meantime. So 
yeah, that's probably a different conversation for a yeah. different day. No, no. I mean, that's a huge one. I, I've been in conversations online where this is, this is people yeah. have said, Hey, I'm just trying to listen to my body. I'm pacing myself and other people yeah. jump in and go, have you heard of exposure therapy? You just need to like really expose yourself. You'll be fine. And I'm like, but that might've worked for someone. I don't know. I can't say it wouldn't. Sure. Maybe, yeah. maybe you did that and that's wonderful, but also maybe your spider phobia is not the same as, you know, someone that's dealing with having been yeah. abused or, you know, like, yeah. or whatever. Um, and so, and, and, and that's one of the things I was going to um, ask about, you know, people that are starting to explore this and do this on their own um, uh, terms. Mm. I am that person. I jump into the pool as a cannonball with everything. I will yeah. lick my ice cream cone with such vigor the ice cream will fall off. I will open the door. I'll break the handle. I, yeah. I do everything with 5,000% yeah. force. You know, I mean, that's just yeah. the way I think and do things. Yeah. And my wife will tell you, I, I, I cover myself in cuts and bruises all day because I'm yeah. just, that's how I approach life. And, and I, I'm learning to slow down, listen, yeah. learn to listen to my body. But with something mm -hmm. like trauma, with something like, oh gosh, there's an issue here I need to work on in my life. I am like, okay, let's read 20 books about it. Let's like yeah. dive into every possible harm that could ever yeah. happen to me and like, and, and just dig it up um, yeah. and that's just not necessarily helpful and and i have seen people that do try and do this work on their own mm -hmm. um get in over their heads very quickly and and with something like trauma you might literally be day one hour zero go i don't know if i have trauma at all anyway uh, maybe i should consider yeah. reds you know um the yeah. body keeps the score and i'm like oh that's yes. interesting let me just think about this you know and within 20 minutes they are like palming their way out of the pool drowning you know they've swallowed half the pool they are freaking out and they go what just happened to me um yeah. i guess you know and maybe some of this is 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 maybe being much more somatic in our practice or I, i'm not sure but for people that are kind of trying to figure some of this stuff on their own like they maybe don't have someone alongside yeah. or maybe they have some great people alongside but they're yeah. not informed enough to kind of know right. and spot kind of warnings and triggers that yeah. a therapist does how do you go about kind of pacing yourself in this journey? Yeah. How do you go about kind of like making sure you don't, you know, get over yeah. your head too quickly? If, if that's possible, I'm yeah. sure people will make mistakes on the way. Or... Uh, yeah, for sure. We all, we all do. I, I think it, you know, the simple answer is it comes back to listening to your body. Uh, of really starting to develop a relationship to and with your body to say, oh, you know, I, I'm reading for 10 minutes, but at minute 11, my heart starts racing. I start getting, okay, well, it, can I just be curious about that? And can I go, well, what would happen if I like put the book down? Then what happens in my body? Oh, my heart starts to calm back down again. What does that tell me? What's the information there? It's telling me I got about 10 minutes of tolerance in me for this stuff. And, and I might need to, I might need to give my permission, myself permission then to step back. Um, I think there is a valuable psychoeducation piece within trauma, especially within complex trauma, uh, which again, I consider religious trauma to be, but complex trauma is often, oftentimes there's not like one thing that you can point back to and say, this thing happened. So you think about a car accident, there was a before and an after, right? I, I remember all the times that I was driving on the road where I didn't get, an, get into an accident or I didn't see an accident or I was... In some ways, it's actually very e easy to deal with, with um, that event, even if even if it leads to trauma, because we can access the before. Okay, well, mm -hmm. let's go back to driving on the road when it was safe. Let's um, let's and do some somatic work around that. 
when we talk about complex trauma with and religious trauma is included in that, there wasn't usually a before, mm. right? There, like I, there was never a point where I didn't have these teachings in my life where I wasn't, in my opinion, being brainwashed to be believing and living out and relating to people in very specific ways. And, and for me, that also included divorcing myself from my body, believing my body was evil, believing that I had to not only not listen to my body, but completely deny my body. Mm. Like, gosh, if I could, you know, like, it sounds so silly, but like, how many times did I not go to the bathroom when I actually really had to go to the bathroom because I was denying my body because I was like, oh, whatever. I don't need to do that. I don't need to care for myself in that very, very simple way. Wow. Right. And so I think that, you know, I think the body is the entrance place to kind of working with trauma, becoming familiar with uh, my body, with my nervous system, how that interacts. Um, you know, I, I'm really a big fan of Peter Levine, and he has this great tiny little book. It's probably less than $10. You probably could find it for free somewhere. Uh, it's called Healing Trauma. Like, that's it, just Healing Trauma. And he gives tons of practices and exercises to start to develop um, a relationship to your body, noticing different mm. sensations, kind of starting to track some of that, starting to get into your body, notice what what is safety. When we talk about internal safety, like what is that and how can we start to develop that? Mm. I think he is an excellent resource. And I would say that is a wonderful place for any person to start who goes, I'm not sure, because that, those are great skills to learn regardless. Sure, if yeah, not, absolutely. Right? Um, and so I think that can be a really great resource, a really great place um, that people can start to go, oh, I'm, I'm noticing this is, this is happening, or I'm noticing, gosh, when I actually sit still, there is a lot going on inside of me that I've just not paid attention to. And so it doesn't have to be this big overpowering process. You know, for you said, I give 5,000% to everything. I'm like, great. Can we give 5,000% to dipping your toe in? Right. And then the next toe or step that we take in, can we give 5,000% to that? It's not about changing who you are and, and, and not going after it with all the vigor. It's just slowing it down. Mm. Um, and, and the thing is, trauma is often something that is too much, too fast, too soon. And it's like, okay, so then the antidote to that is slow, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Which, of course, we don't like because we want a quick fix. We want to be able to, you know, if, if everybody had access to uh, psychedelic therapy where they could take the mushrooms, be guided through the therapeutic trip, like, great, that would be awesome. We're probably 20 years off from that. Uh, you know, we don't want to wait that long. So this, I, I always say slower is better when it comes to healing trauma. And what we start to notice is that the slower we go, the faster we're able to go. And so when we start to develop that sense of internal safety, uh, that ability to connect to our body, understanding what's happening, there comes points then where we can start moving faster because we're noticing mm. the slower that's happening in our body. Um, yeah, I does that help? Yes, that that book is wonderful, a really great. great starting point. If and I would say this, if that even feels too overwhelming, because sometimes that can feel too overwhelming. There's another excellent book. Full disclosure, my therapist wrote it, um, and it's called Mind Body Stress Reset. And so, what most people don't know is stress and trauma. Same thing, like how, how our body perceives that there's traumatic stress and then there's stress, right? And so um, sometimes actually stress feels like a safer way 
to get into doing some of this body work because we're mm. not maybe necessarily connecting it exactly to the trauma. And so um, Mind Body Stress Reset, excellent book, um, just came out, I want to say maybe in December, November, December of 2020. And chalk full of both education and amazing exercises wow. that are very easy to implement and really get you like started on that path um, towards developing internal safety and stabilization, connecting back to your body. Um, love it. Absolutely love it. Highly recommend it. And that's not just because she's my therapist, but also <laughs> because she's my therapist. Um, <laughs> But yeah, That's wonderful awesome. stuff. And and both of those books really are through the lens of somatic experiencing, which is that specific modality that Peter Levine created. So, yeah. No, that's great. What's the name of the author for that? Um, so Rebecca, R-E-B-E-K-K-A-H, Ladine, L-A, capital D-Y-N-E. All right. I just want to write it down because I know I'll get, I'll get messages and yeah. people ask. I'll, I'll probably put links so, in the show notes to some of these things. Yeah, so. it's so good. It's so good. And there actually is a woman on YouTube and she, well, she's on Instagram too, but she has a free YouTube channel and her name is Irene Lyon, L-Y-O-N. And she, I mean, she's also through the lens again of somatic experiencing. However, sure tons of free videos and resources mm. that talk about various aspects of our nervous system, our body, trauma responses. And so again, I think that psychoeducation can sometimes be very helpful for um, complex trauma, religious trauma, because sometimes we're just needing to know like, what the hell is going on inside of me? Yeah. And so having like, having even a basis of like, oh, oh, that makes sense under this lens. This is not some inherent flaw that I have within me. I am not broken. Um, this is a result of how my body is learning to survive mm -hmm. as a result of the things that happen. And that can reduce a lot of shame, actually, um, to say mm -hmm. that uh, this is not just because I'm not working hard enough or I don't want this enough or maybe I like to be a victim. It's like, no, this is this is the stuff that happened and how your body is responding to it. So I would yeah. say those are like kind of my three go-to resources of like, they're all free or very inexpensive. And yeah. if therapy is not an option for whatever reason, these would be great starting points. Wonderful. That's amazing. Yeah. That is so helpful. I wonder yeah. if stuff like this, so I have incredibly bad interoception, you know, I'm, I'm not aware of what's going on in my body. And, and part of that's maybe linked to some of my kind of more autistic kind of uh, tendencies. Maybe sure. that's just part of who I am or however that works. But I do wonder a lot of how much that is ingrained, just growing up in church, oh, yes. growing up yeah. in a world where the body is secondary to the spirit, whatever that is, and, oh, you know, yeah. I mean, whatever that looks like. And I guess I and wonder- And we're not talking for a second. We're talking- No, exactly. Second. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's first and no, that doesn't matter. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, body. no, it's- yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah. We, we are, we're extremely, uh, you know, dualistic the way we see that, you know, maybe the okay. mind gets in here somewhere, but only as the vehicle to serve the spirit. And it's certainly Absolutely. the mind is way above the body even still. Yeah. So, I mean, you yeah. know, the, the body just is not welcome here. And, we, and a lot of that's our weird puritanical stuff. The body is dirty. The body is unhealthy, Evil, whatever yeah. it might be. Do, do you think, I, I I've come across a lot of people within religious trauma that are very divided on this topic. And I've asked Brian as well, but I, and, and I, I, from following you, I have an idea of, of how you yeah. answer this, but I'd love, I know people would love to hear your thoughts on this. Um, and, and 
I don't think there is a right answer necessarily. So don't panic about giving the perfect answer. Anything. But do, do you think, do you think religion is inherently holding back people back from, from their, their trauma work? Do you think people can hold to um, religious um, persuasions? Do you think people can have spirituality? I know like certain people like Marlon Winnell, who's very popular, is extremely anti-religion. She, she wouldn't even so. have me on her. I, I asked, would you come on my show? And she's like, not, no, because on some level you help people who are still spiritual and I'm not wow. willing to talk to wow. people that are doing that. And I was like, Fair enough. I, I, you know, fair enough. That's your thing. But I was like, that's yeah. a strong sense. That is a very black and white, no religion, any kind of spirituality. It's just, no, that's going to further perpetuate harm and, yeah. and trauma. But, you know, and, and on the other side of going, yeah, no, it's fine. Not a problem. I'm sure there's a whole world in the middle somewhere. Um, but yeah. where do you stand on this? When people come to you and they're looking to deal with their trauma, I'm sure at times you must see them coming from a certain religious background and going, this is going to be hard to work on if we can't mm-hmm. kind of whittle away at some of this or some of that, yeah. which which can often be key components of who they are, right? You know, your religion yeah. and who you are mm-hmm. are so interwoven at times. Yeah. Um, oh, very much so, yeah. Do yeah. you have thoughts on this? Is is it possible to do this work with that, you know, with the religion, without religion, spirituality interwoven there? Yeah. So I very much am not anti-religion. Uh, and that's how I advertise myself uh, as a as a clinician. It's also how I believe. Um, to me, holding that position of you must not be religious or you must be an atheist, you, to me, that feels incredibly fundamentalist just at the other side of the spectrum, sure. right? You, you have to have, believe these things, do these things in order to be living the right way or the most beneficial way. I am certainly not against people identifying with agnosticism, humanism, atheism, whatever it is like that. But I want that to be their own choice. If that is, you know, like that they've come to this point because of how they've deconstructed or the own work that they have done. Now, what I am against vehemently is control, harm, power, abuse, oppression, anything like that. Um, So, if there is a way to um, be involved in a religion or a spiritual tradition that is not also including those things, great. That's great. Mm. I mean, and and my job as your therapist is not to ever have you um, believe what I believe. Now, sure. I know that I hold a unique position um, my clients follow me on social media. I don't care. Like I, I'm, I'm not hesitant to talk about certain things with them. I've been on many podcasts that they've asked similar questions. So my clients generally know where I believe, which is fine. Um, but they also know like my goal is never to make them little minions of me. That, right. ugh, that is not what I want. You're not what the I, pastor therapist, right? No, <laughs> oh, oh. right. No, but but they but they also know from our work together that I am very interested in helping them figure out what's right for them. And I have clients all over the spectrum in terms mm. of non-religious, 
progressive religion, a different religion than what they uh, grew up in, a different form of spirituality. I don't particularly see that as a hindrance, as long as they are choosing it of their own free will, that it's free of consequences, that they can take it or leave it or however they want to. And so, you know, if I have a client who's like very committed to believing a certain thing, you know, and, and I might even be able to say like, oh, that's going to be really difficult to work on or whatnot. I kind of look at it through the lens of trauma and, and going like, Hey, you know, like maybe we kind of keep hitting this resistance or whatnot. And we might talk about like, Hey, from, from my perspective, I'm seeing that these things are connected here. I'm wondering, what do you think, Mm. you know, like, how could we, like, what would be the best way to proceed? Or maybe we just get off that track altogether. Like, if, if this is the belief that you're wanting to keep, how might that fit what we're doing over here? Do we see a way to make them work together or are they totally separate or a contradictory of one another? And if that's the case, do we want to explore that? Like, is that, does that feel helpful to you to be able to go that direction? Or do you say, you know what, I'm really not ready to go there yet. And so I think we need to move on over here. I, for no, I am not the expert of somebody's life and I don't want them to be a little version of me. That is not appealing at all. And so I think that those are really wonderful moments as a therapist, keep yourself in check to say like, Hey, this person, this is their sacred belief. And so if they're committed to holding on to it, we might check it out. We might explore it, but that's not ours to change. And we might be able to say like, hey, it, it seems like maybe if you're believing here, here's some other things that would go with it. Is that a problem? No? Okay. You know, then then let's let's proceed. You know, like let's let's go with what you want. And I, you know, I know it's more nuanced than than just that, but I of course I just don't see any reason why you know, like why we can't let people make their own decisions as it comes to faith and spirituality. Yeah. Um I to me, it feels harmful to say otherwise. Yeah. So I think this is something that I come across a lot is, um, obviously most therapists, I, I'm not massively familiar. I've become more familiar with how it works in America, but being a Brit, obviously we have a very yeah. different system in place and a lot of the yeah. same codes of ethics and things like that, but it's very yeah. different. I mean, you cannot yeah. practice if you've not done, you know, full degrees, if not doctorates and things, I mean, yep. it's very hard to practice any form of therapy. Um, yeah. And yet there does feel like this is kind of gray area with certain terms and things like that. And so someone can be practicing as certain things, whatever it might sure. be. I don't know. Um, yeah. and, I, and I have felt that generally speaking, even if you are a therapist who is under a strong code of ethics and really mm-hmm. doesn't want to be um, swaying one's patient, right? Which I'm sure every therapist is like, yeah, no, of course, I don't want to do that. Maybe not every, but most. Maybe yeah. again, the pastor therapist, I don't know how. <laughs> Christian uh, counselors, they're a little different, yeah. Well, and this is the thing, right? So Christian counseling is is very different to being a clinical psychologist, you know, right. with a doctorate right. in psychology, you know. And so if you've got a Christian that's got some sort of clinical background and has, has done yeah. the work, like it's very unlikely that they're going to be as biased. But I say that, but I have worked with people, many people who have gone to people that are very well trained, very well respected, definitely don't want to be biased. And yet being a Christian, this is who I am. And this is the fundamental framework of the universe here. We're talking about some very important things. And what I've found is 
it's really hard not to allow that to influence how you practice when yeah. the person in front of you, it might be fine if they're an atheist and they're talking about, I'm struggling with my marriage and I want to help or whatever. It may be very different when they're a Christian and they go, I'm questioning somebody's core foundations that because what happens really on some level is you have your own ego backlash, right? Cause then your ego goes, wait, let's question that. Holy shit. Maybe I don't believe in hell or whatever. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I wonder, have, have you ever noticed, you know, that on, cause I can imagine going through your own journey, going through your own process of challenging some beliefs and things. Like that. And I, I, we've not talked about your journey. Maybe it'd be fun to talk about that uh, as well at some point. Um, mm-hmm. But you've been on your own journey and, and your own uh, experience of religion. Um, is that, I mean, you must, as a psychologist, know that the, the ethic is there, but at times you go, fucking hell, that's really harmful. And I want to yeah. help this person. And actually, yeah. as a therapist, you are, you're supposed to go, gosh, that's a harmful belief. I need to kind of correct. Yeah. I need to help. How do you draw the line? I mean, this is like totally off the topic of religious trauma. Now. I'm just like, I'm fascinated. Like, because yeah. that feels like a complex one. I don't want to be you know, interfering with your faith. And yet at the same time, as a therapist, I'm supposed to be looking for things that are really holding you back, really harmful, maybe triggering trauma. Um, Is there a way to, I mean, is that just a a judgment call? I don't know. I think there's this myth within therapy that the therapist is this cold, stone-faced, unbiased (laughs) person. And to an extent, we can be unbiased, but before we are ever a therapist, we are human. And we are going to be human just like every person who walks into our office is human. So I think there's a responsibility for the therapist to recognize when their stuff is coming into it. And, and, And that might look like actually having to say something to the client to say like, hey, I got to let you know, like, this is coming from a biased place, or this is coming from my own opinion. I say that to clients sometimes like, Hey, this is my experience of this, um, or what I'm hearing you say, and this could be wrong because I'm filtering it through my own lens. Here's what I hear back. And I, I don't, I don't know. I could be wrong, but I don't think it's wrong to do that, to say, I need to let you know, this is how I'm filtering it. This is mm. what I'm hearing. I think that actually creates for a a greater ability to bond with one another, right? And then, because it's, that's almost like the opposite of like preaching or manipulation or whatever, because like, where I'm trying to like slyly, you know, like get you to a conclusion that I think you should get to. Um, I think when we can recognize like, I am going to bring my own biases into this. And I, my commitment though, is not to not bringing bias in there. It's to recognizing when I am bringing right. my bias in and to, to check in with myself, say, Hey, Hey, this isn't your session. This is this person's session. And I need to let them have this. And if there is truly a toxic, harmful behavior or pattern or teaching or whatever that's going on, of course I might say something, but it's not going to be under the frame of like, holy shit, how the hell do you believe that, right? <laughs> it's going to be way different. And, and I think a good example of this is I work with a lot of domestic violence victims. Yeah. Um, the one thing that I know from working with victims for 10 plus years now is you don't tell them what to do because they are so used to being told what to do and having their voice taken away. However, I can share with them that I'm really concerned about something. 
and to say, you know what, I, I cannot tell you that you need to leave right now. I cannot tell you this. And, I, and I'm very clear, like, I am not telling you what to do, but I do need you to know that, that what you just told me is very concerning. And I'm actually concerned for your physical or mental safety in this situation. And I don't use those words to alarm them. And I also don't use them frequently. So they yeah. know when I say them, it, it means something. And so I think that there is that piece of it too, that to say, Hey, this could be the way that I'm interpreting it. But when you tell me that this is what's being taught and as a result, X, Y, and Z is happening, that feels really concerning to me because I'm, I, it seems to me that you don't have the ability to actually make that choice and correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe I'm not hearing it right. Or maybe this works okay for you. My clients no, like I, I think I probably say it every session, I could be totally wrong. So like, if that's the case, just let me know, right. disregard it. We can go a different direction. They're used to me saying that. But I think when we can say that, like, I'm going to bring my bias in. And, it, and if I say that I'm not, then I am probably not a great therapist because I'm <laughs> living under an illusion that I am something that I simply am not. I'm a very relational therapist. And so I know like upfront, yeah, I'm going to feel a certain way, but I will commit to making sure that like, that I'm aware when I'm bringing that into the room. And I want to let you know about that as well, if that's the case. Um, and, and so then I, preface it. This is my opinion. This is how I'm interpreting it. Here's what I hear when you say that. Um, and I think that that gives them permission then to disagree with it, to tell me how it does work for them. That's great. Um, or to share like that, that feels really concerning. Um, and, and I actually am concerned in a significant way for you. So, yeah, you know, I don't know that all therapists are like that. I, I, I'm so thankful that I have done a lot of work on myself. I think that there are some therapists that don't go to therapy. Uh, that's a problem for a, a lot of reasons, but, <laughs> but they might not be aware of that then. Um, but there is a topic or a concept within therapy called countertransference. And that's this recognition of like, the client is saying something that's triggering something in me that's impacting the way I respond to them. And across the board, regardless of what clinical profession you're in, the recognition of countertransference is like held up, like you gotta yeah. be aware of this for sure. So, so there is that, but, um, but yeah, I, I, we're not going to not bring our biases in there. Sure. We just have to be aware of them and how they play into it. Yeah. yeah. I actually had a therapist at one point, literally stop a session and say, Hey, look, I'm really sorry, but where we're going here, I can't go because wow. that's part of my journey and mm. you know, give you money back I can recommend other therapists but I think it's really important you work on this but mm. I it's not fair for me or for you to to do wow. that and I was really I really appreciate that and I respect I, that what massively. a cool trust but, moment right and absolutely mm. absolutely and I learned so much about that as well and and I've also come across because I don't do therapy at all I'm mm. very quick to go hi here's a list of therapists here's some yeah. websites here's you know yeah. da, 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 da. Yeah. Uh, basically anyone that's messaged me on Instagram ever knows that that's one of my first yeah. go-tos is like, Perfect. you do need therapy. Yeah. Everyone needs therapy in my yeah. opinion. So I'm like, yep. here, here's a list. Um, but I do talk with people and, and help them process and, and listen to their stories yeah, and, and you know, and, and just, you know, they're going like, how, how should I talk to my mom about after having this conversation? I'm like, oh, well, here's some ideas or here's different things. Yes. That might help. And, and the stories that you hear, it's a hard, it's a hard job. You know, I can imagine therapy is a whole host of other levels of, of of very intense things 
they can be very traumatic experiences uh-huh. uh, for, for sure. um, a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, no, absolutely. What yeah. you're doing is hard. And I guess recognizing things that are triggering or yeah. things that you're going, gosh, my experience is twisting this. Yeah. So that I, my input is going to be very much based on what, my, what I did, what I found helpful, yeah. whatever. Um, yeah. and, and that's a, that's a really normal response. I'd yeah. imagine. I know certainly yeah. when I help people and give advice, it's definitely informed yeah. by my own yeah. journey experience, anecdotal things from talking to people yeah. and, and whatever yeah. else. Laura, do you, would you be up for talking a bit about your journey and, and how, sure. I'm just really intrigued. One of the things that I often think about um, is a lot of people say, well, you know, all these people that are coming out of church, all these people that are deconstructing, all these people that are questioning their faith, they all, they all got this trauma and they're blaming us, mm-hmm. right? And well, there's no one in the church with all this trauma, right? So I'm always intrigued talking to people that have had different trauma experiences or are very trauma informed. And so I guess before we kind of jump into that, I, I wonder, do you have thoughts on, um, do you think staying in church protects you from actually mm-hmm. that trauma surfacing, from actually uh, experiencing trauma potentially? Like, because... Yeah, I'm just, I'm so fascinated by it because like you said, people can have these exact same experiences and sometimes it's just not traumatizing. And maybe that's why they stay in the church is it wasn't traumatizing. Maybe you come out because you, you, things are becoming too traumatizing, but is there an element as well where when you come out, you might suddenly be able to frame things in a way or like, do do you have thoughts on, um, yeah, yeah, like that dynamic? It's like kind of like anything in some ways, like it's, it's sometimes it's very hard to see anything when you're in it. Um, you know, so we, we gain greater perspective, the, sometimes the further out we get, we also have to look at the way a lot of religious systems work. I mean, the consequence for leaving oftentimes feels so great that Mm -hmm. we go, I cannot look at that thing. And, and I know we'll probably get into more of my story, but I mean, I, I, have some very pivotal moments in my own experiences where I was like, this isn't real. This isn't right. This is not what I want to be a part of. But in that moment to go any further with that question or to allow myself to linger any more on that feeling or that body sensation Mm. or that experience would have meant I would have left gotten kicked out of the church. I would have lost my job. I would have lost my friends, my family, everything. Right. So the cost was, is so high. The cost was way too high. And, and there came a point um, later on where the cost wasn't as high so I could leave. And, and, and that's, you know, kind of a different story or whatnot. But I, I think that that is why it's so difficult. And, and not only that, but then we have all these beliefs and um, theologies and doctrines and whatever that promise all sorts of things are going to happen. If you question, if you doubt, if you step away, if you disregard, if you reject, like whatever. And that's scary because like the the ultimate consequence is like eternal conscious torment, right? So if I let myself go down this road with these doubts, or I let myself date this person who's not a part of this church or religion or whatever, like it's leading me towards this other life, these other thoughts, these other relationships that ultimately pull me further away and then ends, get me ending up in hell Mm. potentially, Um, which is scary, right? Yeah. Oh, that's a terrifying choice. Yeah. yeah. So it is very difficult. It's, I don't think it's that you can't see 
the trauma while you're in it. Um, I just think it's really hard. Um, I, I can think of somebody where I've started dialoguing with them. It's somebody in my personal life. And I'm very aware of extreme amounts of religious abuse and, and trauma mm. that this person is living from. And she can only acknowledge it this much because she's still in it. And yeah. she's had to find other ways to spiritually bypass and to cope with it in order to stay in that rather than acknowledging the immense amount of pain, because acknowledging that would blow her world open in a yeah. way that feels too overwhelming right now, consciously intolerable. Um, yeah. And so I think, I mean, I can't say that for everybody. I know that there are of people course. who can recognize certain things um, to, to even the fullest extent. Um my hunch is that that's not super common. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> that it's yeah, no, that sounds right to me. I mean, I only have anecdotal from talking with people, but yeah. it definitely feels, and I know like certainly for people just generally in this, this era, even just deconstructing, even like I've got some questions about certain beliefs or things yeah. like that. You start looking and then you think, hold on, this means losing my family, my friends, yeah. God, my relationship with God, my mm -hmm my identity my purpose my job because i took up a job in a christian charity or you know it's like da, 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 and you start to go you know what maybe i'll just put that question to the side and it might not even be that conscious a decision yeah. right it's not that you even i think a lot of people do weigh up all that and go okay back away slowly yep. but i think a lot of people that all happens under the surface and they just shut down and kind of, oh, I'm distracted. I'm watching yeah. a bee now, you know, yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. Like, oh, oh, yeah. I mean, our nervous systems operate on our subconscious, right? And our nervous systems are programmed for our survival. Mm. And so it's not, to your point, it is often not a conscious choice to not question. It's that I feel the threat. We go in a different direction. Halt yeah. everything that we're doing. Turn around, go back the other way. So yeah, and when that's been wired into you and, and you can see everything that you would lose your entire livelihood, it takes a lot to actually lean into that. It is more normal, if that's even a thing, mm -hmm. to look back and to, to just pull back from that and to say that's too big of a threat. Um, mm -hmm. That is a threat to my very survival. I, can't, I cannot go down that path. Yeah. And so. who could ever ever hold that against someone as well god i don't want that like i i hear i went through it no, I, don't, I don't want that at all i wouldn't want to do it again even um i want the outcome but i do not yes. want to go you know like the process um, and so it's fun. so so hard isn't it because it's easy to demonize someone and go oh look at them they're just they're not facing reality or they're whatever and, and actually usually that's not even on the table it's not yes. that they're being illogical or irrational or they're not facing things or Right. It's it's a whole subconscious mechanism there, just going. No, I just want Phil to feel safe and secure yeah. and certain, yeah. and you know, be able to get through the next day without pooping his pants. You know, if we yeah. could do that, that'd be great. You know, um, <laughs> but right now we're close to pooping his pants because he is terrified. Yeah. So we're just gonna back away, and Phil's never even gonna know that that was on the cards. You know, <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's yeah. perfect. Yes, um, exactly that. Exactly that. <laughs> wonderful. Well, Laura, t tell me a bit about your journey. Tell me about you know you obviously are passionate about this whole area and I don't think people tend to become very passionate about religious trauma without a bit of a story on their own um, yeah. uh, journey. Did you, were you born into the church kind of brought up in that world? Yeah, I was. Um, I, I'm trying to, uh, so I, there's never a point where I wasn't involved in, I mean, up until I left. Uh, but yeah, so I mean, 
I think uh, the story goes, you know, like three days after I was born, like was my first church service or something like that. Yeah. Right. Um, so never, never had a time growing up where that was not a part of, of who I was and who my family was and what was prioritized and taught and those sorts of things. <clears throat> Excuse me. I am. Um, when I was, let's see, fourth grade, I think late elementary school. Um, my dad took a position as a director for an evangelical free church camp. And so it was this, um, yeah, year round camp that, uh, people came to, you know, a lot during the summer, but then on the weekends they would do retreats and whatnot. And, you know, on, on some, like on the one hand, I'm like, I had some like really amazing experiences. Right. Um, you I'm know, hearing that. Know. And my inner yeah. like eight year old or whatever is going, <laughs> are you kidding? This is the best thing yeah. ever. <laughs> I get to live at camp. Like, like, yeah. 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 And so like, yeah, there's like a horse corral and a petting zoo and, a, you know, climbing wow. wall. And like, you know, so there was some really, truly amazing things that I think, of course, as a kid, I like took for granted. And now I'm like, oh my gosh, if I could like walk down the street a little bit and have like a beachfront and lakes and oh, boats, wow. it, would be, it would be truly amazing. So, um, the shadow side for me, I guess, is that, you know, it very much then, of course, informed how we lived. And, and sure. like one would imagine, a camp is relatively, it's not close to anything. So, you know, like my school was 20, 25 minutes away. The church that we went to is 30 minutes away. And, and really, um, you know, if, if it was a matter of having to prioritize activities, church obviously won over sure. friends. And, and I've thought about that a lot because, like, you know, during the summer, probably until for sure the summer that I could drive, maybe even the summer after that, I just wouldn't see any friends oh, wow. during the summer, any breaks, anything. I lived far enough out and that was not the priority. And so, um, yeah, so lived at, the, lived at the camp, but also was like very much affiliated with the church. Um, I went to public school for those people that don't know, like certain states have better public schooling systems. Minnesota, which is where I'm from, is one of them. Um, so private school wasn't really a thing. But I do remember begging my parents, my mom specifically, to let me homeschool because I mm. got to a certain point where I was so terrified of being like pulled down, you know, by the wow. devil tempting me. And, you know, and I just, I couldn't see any way to get through middle school and high school being around the sinners. Right. And, you know, of course you're supposed to like witness, but I was just like, I'm not strong enough to do that. And I think probably for a full school year, I just begged my parents to let me be wow. homeschooled. I think they considered it. And I, I don't know ultimately why they said no, I'm glad they said no. Um, you know, and I think part of it was my mom wanted to go back to work. She was a teacher. My dad's, you know, doing his camp stuff all day and it is what it is. So I did get a secular education, but even that was very much infiltrated. I mean, we didn't have like overt purity culture teachings, but we had like education now and babies later. That was like mm. the abstinence program that everybody did. And so anyways, I, um, had this thought in my head that uh, I think it was because I'd heard so many people's testimonies and whatever, that once I graduated from high school, that's when I would really commit to God. I would do this kind of lukewarm stuff, but that's when I got to like play around or whatever. And then once I graduated from high school, I'd really live from God, but I was so scared. <laughs> 
that like I never played around in high school. Right. <laughs> Wasted this prime opportunity, Laura. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> I'm 1000% the same. Like I yeah. like was terrified <laughs> at any juncture to like, you know, no, we're not going to mess around here. Not yeah. even for fear of hell, just because I was a very timid person. I think yeah. I just was so terrified of rejection or people laughing yeah. at me or who knows what. Yeah. And yeah. I was scared of punishment, like from like the punishment oh. that I would get from my parents or whatnot. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. So it was, it was just, you know, it was what it was. And of course, during that time, you know, when I was in middle school is when purity culture, like true love weights campaign, like really started to take right. hold. So I was very much immersed into that whole lifestyle, did the whole purity ring thing, made the pledge of virginity, you know, whatever, whatever. Um, and I, I think it was probably like my junior or senior year of high school is when the purity culture books really started hitting the shelves. Right. And so that's when everything started being taken to like the, the next level and the next level, you know, Josh's book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. And the one that was particularly horribly influential on me was Dana Gresh's book called And the Bride Wore White. And just, I mean, I mean, it like covered every aspect of who you were and what you could say and how you had to have your body posture and the clothes you wore and so good of a guy to write that for all these girls so nice well no that was actually a woman but she oh, quoted a woman. josh a lot yeah oh, okay. <laughs> quoted josh harris in the book a lot oh, um yeah so you know it was very much into that and of course high school ends and i remember having this moment like as i stepped outside of the graduation ceremony i was like this is it. Every choice that I make from this point on impacts the rest of my life and my eternity. Mm, and I'm like, wow. I was 17. No pressure. Right? No pressure. And so I ended up instead of, I, I had scholarships to go to different colleges and universities. I um, graduated at the top of my class, but I thought, well, all I'm supposed to do is get married and have kids. And so I guess I'll go to a community college to kind of like bide my time um, and find a husband and then start having like eight children. I thought eight having eight kids would be like, now I'm just like, oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the end of that sentence to me is not positive. Having eight kids would be base. There's yes. only negative words I can think to put in there. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm How so on earth? That, yes, I am so glad that this plan that I thought I was supposed to live did not happen. But yeah, I just thought, you know, within a year or two of um, of going to community college, like some man would see me as this, you know, hopeful, you know, godly wife and and that would be it. And it did not happen. Mm. Um, so I during that time, um, I started working at the church that I was going to. So it was a very fundamentalist reformed theology church. Um, I started working full, uh, as a paid, uh, position within the youth department and kind of like slowly worked my way up. Um, I was doing the youth director role, but wasn't allowed to be called a youth director because I was right. a woman. And so the highest I could go was youth coordinator. Um, and that's, I think for me, I look at those years and, uh, I think I was there for four or five years, maybe. Yeah. And, um, really devastating, really devastating. When I look at, um, I, I just 
what I had to believe that going back to this idea of like, I had questions, but to follow those questions through would mean this loss of job, right. loss of community, loss of friends, all of these things. And at 18 or 19 or 20 or 23 years old, I wasn't ready to go there because I didn't believe I had worth as a human being, let alone a woman. I didn't have an education. I, I ended up finishing my four-year degree in Christian ministry, like specializing with youth wow. ministry. I'm like, I can't go anywhere. I'm a woman, <laughs> yeah. like, you know, whatever. And so I really felt trapped. And um, I ended up starting to date somebody who the church elders and pastors did not like. And it wasn't because he wasn't a Christian or anything like that. They just, they thought that I was not uh, a submissive enough woman, that I was too, um, had too many leadership skills to that, that given the chance I would bulldoze any man that I dated, but especially this guy. Um, and he was younger than me, but it, but they, the way they painted me to be as like this real ball busting, whatever, I mean, crushed me as a person. Um, and it just did a lot of damage. And, and mind you, this is a purity culture relationship. So like there was no kissing even like I had this commitment to wait until I was married to kiss. Wow. And so, I mean, I think like he kissed me on the hand a couple of times, like after he asked for permission, um, you know, cause he was like, yeah, we I mean, that, that's it, you know? Yeah. But the church leadership hated it so much that they what they started doing is I think they knew that they couldn't fire me for that because I literally was not doing anything wrong. And right. so they slowly started like making my world very small. They would take responsibilities away from me. They would say, well, we can't trust you with um, the, this group of people. So you're no longer in charge of that. We can't trust you with this group. And then they started getting people to spy on me and report back to them. And I know that sounds really like, I don't weird, like, oh, you're just making it up. No, like literally my own family did it. Wow. Um, and so everybody that was my support system was literally turning me in for um, things that did not happen. You know, they would say, oh, I saw Laura pop up here with this guy or whatever. And I was like, that didn't happen, but I wasn't allowed to speak on any of that. Mm -hmm. And I think really what the goal was, was that they, wanted to drive me out. And ultimately they did. And, um, but even after that, I tried to leave the community and I thought, well, I'll go back to school to become a therapist and I'll work at another church and, you know, go down to the twin cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul, which is, uh, the capital of Minnesota. And, um, and I would apply for jobs and apply for schools and interviews would go great. And then mm -hmm. shut door. And I figured out, found out later that they had called every single one of those places that I had been applying to for jobs or school and just completely blacklisted me. And, yeah. and so not only then am I, I've, I've lost this whole community, but I was trapped in it. I couldn't go anywhere. So the only thing I could do was start to repent and repair. And so I basically, it was like anybody who had a grievance with me could sit down with me unload and I had to take responsibility for everything and then, you know, go on this apology tour. And so I did that because I didn't know what else to do. The cost was still too great. Wow. Yeah. Um, 
but through that, I, you know, of course I wasn't working at the church, but I was volunteering all this time because that was penance. Mm -hmm. Um, but I did, I did go and I worked as a a recruiter for a, a community college and, and I hated the job so much that I was like, I'm going to start looking at other grad schools. And so um, eventually ended up at Liberty University, which is super fundamentalist, but you know, whatever. Actually got a really good education there, but um, um, it was something about that was enough. It was like a little bit of hope. Like mm-hmm. I, I did this for myself and I'm, yeah. I'm starting to make a career for myself that isn't attached to religion. Yeah. And so that perhaps someday if I wanted to leave, I could. And so I think through that whole time as I was at Liberty, like I said, I actually really, they gave a great education. It it wasn't Christian counseling. It was, you know, it was a legitimate therapy program that they had to have all the specific classes. And so I think it was during that time that I started to that's when I really started to actively deconstruct and just kind of going, gosh, like, you know, like all these things that have been real black and white over the years aren't like when you put, when you start working with people, you're like, Oh, that's, that's not that way. Like that's Mm -hmm. like, I've been taught all these things, but like I'm sitting across from this person and like, it's not, it's not that, but I also knew that there was only so much I could do in that community when you're so insulated. It's like, I could, I allowed myself to start asking questions, but there's only so many you can ask because you're still so oppressed by that. Yeah. And so probably with about a year after or a year left into my program, I decided I was going to move uh, to Nashville, which is where I'm at now. Um, which was like 11 years, 12 years ago. Um, and I thought, once I get there, that's when I will really be able to do it. And, and so to a degree that, that is what happened. I, I left, I left the community that I was from. I got to Nashville and I was like, holy cow, uh, <laughs> nobody really knows me. I can do or be whatever I want. And not shockingly, I started by going back to church and, and I was able to recognize, like there was one church I visited that I actually developed some friends at that. I was like, Nope, this is too much like my other church. Mm. Um, and so I was dating somebody at the time and we went to this other church and a woman was preaching and I was like, this is the first and last time I will ever be here. But I also couldn't deny that what she was saying was awesome and also her husband was on this stage and 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 she was just like a guest speaker so I was like I can try this out <laughs> right um and so so I stayed there I broke up with the guy but I stayed at the church and and it was a really good stepping stone for me it was a southern baptist church which there's all sorts of problems with that but there was enough wiggle room and permission of questions that it felt really um it felt free to be totally sure, honest yeah Like nobody stopped me from asking questions. Everything was allowed. And I really started to appreciate that. In the meantime, I started dating somebody else who echoed that as well, where questions were fine. And he would kind of challenge me in a good way to say like, I don't think that thing that you were taught is necessarily helpful or Mm. it's not, I don't think that's right. I don't think most people believe that. And, um, it ended up being a very horrible relationship. It was marred by domestic violence and a lot of abuse. Um, but I will always remember and appreciate that time where I was able to ask questions with freedom. And, 
And it also helped me get out of the faith even more. So I certainly mm. would never wish that upon anybody. Sure. That's not the recommended path out of no. faith. No. <laughs> yeah. So. But what was interesting is that when I finally got out of that relationship, I started like comparing notes of like, he said this to me. And that sounds like what God says too. And I started getting confused. Who said mm -hmm. what? Is this my earthly abuser or is this the God that I just have been like serving? And it really led me into this position of like questions and curiosity and, and deconstruction. Like I literally remember getting a stack of index cards and like writing out, here's the belief, here was the scripture. And I set it down and then just started like... <laughs> I'd pick up a card like, okay, how is this not right? Let you know, I was very technical. I love and, uh, it. Yeah. And that was, it was, it was good. And, you know, I, I still wasn't recognizing the trauma piece of it, but I was doing the best I could. I didn't yeah, know anything different. I thought I was the only person who was going through something like this. And in fact, part of the reason that I stayed in the abusive relationship as long as I did is that I genuinely thought I had to choose the lesser of two evils. I either had to stay with him or I had to go back to this abusive religious system. And I thought, well, this one feels better for the time being. And finally, I gave myself the third option of like, I guess I'll just be single for the rest of my life. So I don't have to have either. I'll just go for this, this third option. And so, but that's how indoctrinated I was. Like, I literally did not believe that there was anybody else out there other than the sinners that mm -hmm. could, you know, like have a belief in God or whatever. And I wasn't ready to not call my myself a Christian. I wasn't ready to let go of all of that. It that was too big. It was too scary. Like again, the cost was too great. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, there was a lot kind of combined. So I really was doing the best I could. It was mostly cognitive, and um, but eventually was able to get to a point where I was like, oh, I've like abusive relationship hopped my entire life, you know, whether it's a relationship with God, a relationship with a pastor, a relationship with a romantic partner, they've all been incredibly abusive. And so mm. understanding that was not particularly fun. Um, and, um, and it really did take a process. I, I, the way I remembered it was like, oh, I just left, I was done. And then in reading like journals for my research and whatever, I was like, oh no, no, no. This was <laughs> this was a process of trying so hard to hold on to to shift. And I remember this day. So I work with domestic violence victims a lot. And um, one kind of widely known statistic is that uh, speaking of women, um, uh, women in relationships with an abusive, domestically violent man will leave the relate, leave and come back to the relationship seven times before they, on average, before they leave for good, mm -hmm. or they're they're killed, and um, it's a really heavy thing to stay with. But I came to a point one day where I was like, that is exactly what I've been doing with God. For all these years, I've been yeah. coming back saying, maybe if I change this, well, let's try it this way. How about I'll work on this and, and let's whatever. And, and I was trying so hard to make this relationship work. And I remember sitting in my living room one day and it was over something real benign. It, and it, as it always is when ending abusive relationships, the thing that like breaks the camel's back is not 
is not the big assault. It's the really random thing that happens. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, wow, I see it. And it was, Mm. it was something like I was wanting to buy a house and some, I was like, I was never supposed to do this by myself. Like I was supposed to have a husband and my eight children and, you know, like (laughs) buy this huge house and he was a pastor and whatever. And all of a sudden I was like, oh my goodness. I don't think God exists because for the last, however many years I've been in a domestically violent relationship and I've shifted and shape shifted and changed myself around. And you've never shown up. You've never done the things that were promised. And this is not because of a lack of belief. I have believed so hard that I've let all this other stuff slide. I have let God abuse me the same way I let my partner abuse me because I thought if I could just keep trying harder and just change myself enough, then it would, then it would finally work. And I, and, and then it was done. I was like, okay, we are done. It is over. That's the Taylor Swift song. We are never, ever getting back together. Like that's it. Um, and, and that was a good moment. And like any abusive relationship, it was not about me getting back together with God. But from that point forward, it started uh, on getting over the impact. And that's where I really started to recognize the trauma piece of it. Of I've been in this abusive relationship for 30 plus years. Um, this has a huge impact on my life and I have to work on the trauma piece of it. So that's like a, a overview. And I know it's not all the details I'm welcome or I'm of open course, to asking yeah. questions or whatnot, <laughs> but that is, that's definitely when things change and, and, mm. and really reintroducing myself to my body and really processing trauma from that point has been pivotal. Like I, I cannot mm. say enough good things about body-based work because it wasn't until I had been doing all this cognitive work And I still felt like shit all the time. And it wasn't until I started actually resolving that trauma through my body that I started seeing different symptoms decrease. I started seeing joy. I started liking myself. I started, you know, liking my life and being really excited about what I could do and where I could go. And Mm. it's not a walk in the park all the time. However, I, I am grateful that I've, I've been on this journey like you. I would never want to do it again, No, but I am grateful for where I've ended up. Um, yeah. and I feel very like blessed, hashtag blessed for, you know, my experiences <laughs> and the people I've come across, you know, on the day to day, I have a wonderful group of friends. We call ourselves the black sheep. And cause we all came from the same background, same church. We were the ones that met over margaritas in secret to go, what just happened to us? You know? <laughs> um, so I'm really, really glad to have those people yeah. in my life, but it's, it's been a journey. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh. Well, it sounds it. And thank you. Yeah. Cause I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, the, every person I, I've learned this, over thousands of stories that every mm-hmm. story is so unique and yet you see these broad brushstrokes and you'll see the same maybe working with people in trauma it's like whoa every traumatic experience is so unique and yet there's that piece again yeah. oh my gosh yeah. that's coming up and mm-hmm. um and it's just it's so painful the, the i've actually got a piece i'm working on to post on social media um yeah. about the parallels between um people's relationship with church and leaving church and people's uh, and and people that try to leave domestic abuse situations yeah. And, and there's like six main markers, I think there were. And I looked at the six markers and I was like, oh, that's how yeah. everyone tries to leave the church and fails. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and it is, it's astonishing that 
dragged out. I read one statistic, um, I quote it all the time by, um, I think it's Packer and Hope, and they're Christian researchers and they were looking at um, people that leave the church and they had their, their Christian perspective, their thesis, the number one thesis was that all people leave because they were hurt and then they couldn't find one person out of a thousand people that left because they were hurt. Not one. Mm. People were hurt, but actually people stayed for decades after they were hurt yeah. a lot of the time yeah. and were hurt multiple times and they kept hanging around. Um, yeah. And one of the things that they came up with that, that really shocked them was that people on average, when they asked retroactively, when, when looking back, when was the first time that you thought I need to leave this church? Mm. And most of them on average, it was seven years before they left. People yeah. really struggle to leave this machine. And, and for a lot of us, it's, you know, I was heavily involved in church to the degree where I was in leadership, you know, my yeah. finances are wrapped up in that. You know, I know that oh, you yeah. had similar pattern that, but yeah. even for people that aren't so heavily, wrapped, this is, it's really hard existential yeah. work. Like uh, who I am is wrapped up in this. I don't even know who I am without this stuff, right? Your who, identity, yeah. You know, like, yeah. what does that even look like? Um, mm-hmm. How did you go about forming that new identity? Like, did did you yeah. did you have people that had come along and left church alongside you? You mentioned your black sheep fam- family. Um, you know, had yeah. some of them gone and forged ahead so you kind of knew that you'd have people with you? Or did you feel like you were just going out into your into the world the on your own? Or, yeah. Yeah? Oh, wow. Yeah. So, you know, there was a couple of pivotal experiences that I had because I truly, so when I left the church, um, a, about a year later, another couple left uh, the church also, and, and they are part of my black sheep family. Um, and I, I like, I, I think we don't totally know how important it was for us to be together mm. because we, we really did think this, this is a fluke. <laughs> like there right. must be some, and to be totally honest, when we were, when we were coming out of the church, social media was not a thing. You know, I, it just, it just wasn't, I mean, Twitter and Facebook existed. I, I think Instagram existed, but like, it was not what it was today. Right. And so we, like, there was one Facebook group that we were a part of, and it wasn't even like a post-church or post-religious. It was just kind of like asking these questions and going like, hey, this is a safe place to say it. this thing wasn't okay, right? Um, and so there was a couple moments that I had that really were like big wake-up moments to me that seemed to push me forward that I didn't know that I needed, but looking back, I'm like, that it's very pivotal. One of them was a quite personal experience in which, you know, so I said purity culture, wasn't going to kiss until I was married. And so here I am, um, not too many months shy of 30, never kissed, you know, even though I, I had actually come to a decision probably a year, two years before that, I was like, I don't think that that's really what I want to do, but I just hadn't engaged in anything like that. Sure. Yeah. And so I had this, uh, sexual experience with my, the guy that I dated. I didn't know he was abusive at the time. And, um, it was wonderful. So first of all, all these things are happening. I'm like, I thought I would be really ashamed to look a certain way in front of, you know, somebody who's not my husband or, I thought I would have no confidence or, or whatever. And so as things are happening, I'm like, well, this is weird because like, this is not how I was told I would act or right. how my body would respond or, you know, whatever. And I thought, well, I'm just caught up in the sin, you know, whatever. And so the next morning I, I was like, I, I didn't want to get out of bed because I thought the moment that I will get out of bed, the shame and guilt is going to wash over me. Mm. And I finally had to get to this point where I was like, okay, um, 
that's just going to have to happen then. Like, and I will repent and whatever God wants me to do to convict my heart, to take away all my leadership responsibilities. Cause I led worship at the church and you know, whatever I was like, I'll do it. I'll pay for this sin that I've (laughs) committed. And I got out of bed and I kid you not, my feet were on the ground and it felt, I can't even describe the experience. I call it sunshine. It was like, I was connected to myself, to the universe, Mm. to God. It felt like there was sunbeams coming out of my heart. And I was like, shit, this is really bad. Satan has got me good. So far from God. That like, I can't even be convicted. I'm celebrating my sin. And so I was like, I can't deny this feeling. This is so visceral and real. And I'm like, oh, this is like the first time, like I felt my true essence in my Mm. body and whatever. And so so it was a Sunday morning. So I thought, okay, I'll go to church. God will convict my heart there. Didn't happen. Okay, I'll go to small group tonight. Didn't happen. For two weeks, I'm like begging God, please convict me. I don't want to have a hard heart. Like, you know, all these Christianese, whatever. Right. And I finally went to this girlfriend's house and she was older. She did not, she older than me. She did not grow up in the church. Um, you know, she came to it later in life. So far more, far less of like a fundamentalist legalistic background. And I shared with her what had happened. And she just looked at me with so much sincerity and she goes, do you believe you're being honest when you tell God that you'll accept whatever consequence it is for this sin? I said, yeah, absolutely. And I was like, I, you know, he can convict me. I'm guilty, whatever. And she just said, maybe you don't create guilt where there is none. And I was like, oh, wow. but then the next thought was, well, shit, if I believe that I have to question pretty much everything that I've ever been taught. Mm-hmm. And so, but that was the point where the cost wasn't too high right. because I, had an independent life. I had a job that I was proud of. I could support myself. I still had this very abusive partner, not knowing at the time, but there was enough there that the cost was not too high to start asking questions. And so I did have that person come alongside me, but then relatively was on my own for a while. And so the the thing that I kept telling myself was, I at this point, I believe God is sovereign. He knows mm. everything. So that means if I ask questions, like there's never going to be a point where he's like, oh shit, I didn't see that one coming. Now she's gone way too far that I can't get her back. And so I really had to like cling on to that belief that like, if God is really sovereign, then at some point he'll shut those doors. He'll turn me around, whatever it is, and he'll get me back. And that's where Mm -hmm. I I just have to trust that. And so I did. And, um, you know, a year after, uh, so a couple of years later, I finally left the church. And then, you know, about a year after that, this, these, this married couple friend and, um, and we just kept asking the questions and, um, and then there came a point where I was like, I don't need to trust that sovereignty piece anymore. Like, yeah. it's okay to just keep asking the questions, um, And so that's why for me, it wasn't just this cut and dry, God exists or God doesn't exist. It really was a process, but I, I, you know, outside of my, my two friends for a long time, 
that wow. was it, you know, um, it, yeah. it was just us. And, and um, I am so, so grateful. Um, and I remember hearing somehow like heard about like the liturgist podcast mm. and like heard Jamie Lee Finch, who is now a friend of mine, lives in Nashville, heard her like recite a poem and then like just Googled her name on like Apple podcasts. And I was like, oh my God, there's like, there's <laughs> podcasts that people talk about this stuff with. I should listen. And so by that point, social media was like a bit more of a thing. This, right. this, you know, I had left the church probably four or five years before that, but like, that was so healing unto itself mm. to go, even though I've already deconstructed a lot of these beliefs, I've really worked a lot of this through my body. The, the idea of just having other people who can walk this road with you is so powerful to know that huge, you're not alone. Huge. And to know that there's, there are these communities where people can just be like, I don't get this. Like, are you feeling this way too? Like it, it's, it, it is healing unto itself. I mean, it, yeah. it's huge. I'm so, I'm so grateful for that. Um, yeah. I wish I would have had it back then, but I'm okay that I didn't because we yeah. have it now. Um, and so that's why I love doing stuff like this because I'm like, I know when I started listening to those first few podcasts, even though I'd already done all this work it normalized so many more experiences that it was like, oh, like, again, this is the healing I didn't even know I needed. And here it is right in front of me. So it, yeah, it was, it's it, what we have, like the resources that we have are just so incredible. I, I love that there's all of this accessible to us. Yeah, no, it's, it's extraordinary. I mean, the, what is available today um, mm. versus what was available back whenever. You know, I talk about this a lot, but Europe had a huge falling away of Christianity 70 years ago. And, you know, most of Europe is now atheist, you know? Yes. And yet the reason most of Europe is atheist is because literally when they had their falling away, they didn't have the internet. They had no one to talk to. They had no one to yeah. ask. So it was yeah. just kind of like, okay, so I don't believe some of these things. Mm. What are my options? Oh, I guess I'm not a Christian. Okay, cool. And that was it. Now, I think that's a totally great outcome. I think it's sure. wonderful. I, I love my atheist friends and, and, and yeah. I, I, man, most days I live like an atheist, I tell you. Um, but I do think there's something quite beautiful about what's happening in America is this this massive falling away that is in many ways replicated and in, in, in mirroring what happened throughout Europe. Um, in other ways, it's very different for very different reasons. Um, it does feel like it's such a different experience because it's happening now. It's not... Sure happening in a place where people couldn't talk where they couldn't explore yeah. where they weren't being they weren't seeing themselves in a mirror when they listened to people talk and yeah. or now that's it you google it and you know yeah. some and even your pastor who hates you doing this and you've been too scared to say it he's now preaching from the front going the worst thing today is this thing called deconstruction don't search for deconstruction or go on social media and look for deconstruction it's it basically what it is is people are questioning their faith and that's the worst thing ever and you're sitting there going yeah. Wait, there's other people questioning? I didn't know. Cool. I'm quickly yeah. Google deconstruction. Hashtag yeah. deconstruction, you know, or whatever, right? <laughs> um, and so, you know, right now people are just discovering this in a way. And, you know, like you said, even if you've deconstructed for four or five years, I talked to people that have deconstructed 10, 20 years ago and going, yeah. this is helping me. Just give yeah. verbiage, a bit like what I was saying when realizing, oh, I have all these kind of autistic components to me. 
Yes. I had that as an eight-year-old. And now it helps me kind of integrate some of that childhood and go, yeah. oh, that's, gosh, oh, that's what happens. Oh, Phil, let me love that past yeah. self and kind of bring healing to that and allow oh, that to my. flourish. Or, and this is what's happening for a lot of people as they look back as they're listening to podcasts and they're hearing someone like you that, you know, has such a wealth of information and, and wisdom and guidance to share yeah. on, on religious trauma, but also such a beautiful story, you know, and such a painful, vulnerable story. Um, but such a story full of hope and healing that, oh my gosh, you know, this is why I love to talk to people about their stories because oh, yeah. on some level I, I live in the, in the information, the academic, yeah. the, the, yeah. the inf I just love it. I love that stuff. Yeah. So I love having people on like you, that's like, you're an expert. Tell me yeah. all the things, right? And <laughs> I'll write it all down and then I'll be an expert and I'll not, I'll never have any of these problems. That's not how it works, but that's how I think. Um, yes. but I love talking to people about their stories because I, I immediately go, oh my gosh, my heart. Because I've, I've felt like that. Or, yeah. Oh man, that's what that feels like. You know, it, it's such a, it's a humanizing process. It helps ground me and realize that I'm in the middle of something that millions of people are going through, you know, because yeah. it does feel like a lonely process, yeah. this. Even, even today, it feels lonely for a lot of people. Oh yeah. I, trauma, shame, they breed in isolation you know? Yeah. And, and so I think, you know, it's funny because like I said, I didn't have, other than my two friends, you know, we didn't have social media or whatever, but we had the TV show, Big Love, <laughs> which is on HBO. It's a, it's a, it's a fundamentalist Mormon family. And I'm in, I'm immediately in. Yeah. I love stuff like this. <laughs> And, you know, it's, it's, it, I mean, it's not reality TV or anything. It's, it, you know, it is, it's a, not a sitcom, it's a drama, whatever. But we decided to watch it because it sounded good or whatever. And that was where we were like, oh my goodness. Like we were taught that Mormon, Mormonism was a cult and we believe all of these same things. We do uh -huh. all of these same things. And there is just something like so like miraculous about seeing your life exemplified in somebody else that yeah. you're like, uh, oh, okay. You know, the questions that I've had are, those were, those were right on, you know, these practices that right. I've questioned. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. You know, and here's this group that, that we were taught was really evil. And yet they have almost the same beliefs that I do. I got to question that. And so, you know, so we didn't have social media. We had this little show, but even that, that was like a Hollywood, you know, whatever was enough to start being able to see yourself in the story to say, I think I can give myself more permission to like be honest and accurate about yeah. what has happened to me, um, be it trauma, adverse religious experiences or what have you. Um, and that, it's just, it's so much permission and, and not that we yeah. need permission from other people, but we think we do, especially when we're yeah. coming out of those systems. And so to have that in the face of others and just their lived experiences is, is such a gift that we can give to other people. So I, I mean, I think that's why what you're doing here is great. And so many of these other podcasts where it's like, people are just sharing because they're, I mean, it's, it's beautiful. It is truly yeah. beautiful.
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's it's one of the the best feelings in the world. Wow. Like I I remember the first time I got really into Myers Briggs personality yeah. type. But yeah. I remember the first time I did it. Gosh, it must have been like twenty years ago or something now. And I remember reading the profile for um I, I'm a INTJ. I don't really hold much stuff okay. on personality profiles yeah. anymore. But I, I'm reading <laughs> the profile and I literally I found myself crying. And I, like I said, I'm not very introspective. I'm not very aware of my emotions. I've I've got alexithymia and different things like that. And so I'm reading and, I, and I'm just crying and I'm like I'm someone gets me like a, a printout from a computer or something gets yeah. me but I'm like this yeah. is me and so even just I don't even need a person to go yeah. oh that's like me just someone has articulated what I'm like mm-hmm. I, I'm not a freak there's yeah. there's a category for me <laughs> that's great <laughs> like yeah. um, it's, it's, it's just something it's something beautiful when you can go oh my gosh you went through that experience and you can identify that as wrong that that he that is so healing because I thought it was wrong, but then I I wasn't allowed to think it was wrong. I felt yeah. shame, but I felt guilty about that. Actually, I thought I was wrong, or you know, like all these things, and just seeing these things, giving us permission. Like you said, we don't need permission, but often we we create the boundaries for ourselves that require us to give ourselves permission. You know, Absolutely, is there? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy, but so good. Yeah. Laura, this has been so fun. I could easily talk for hours more. This has been really great. I, I just, yeah, it's, it's been really, really um, wonderful. I so appreciate you taking the time to, to share as well. You have so much stuff going on that is incredible. Tell people how they can dive into it. What, what's the best okay. ways to be connecting with you? All right. So I'm going to ask you a little insider question. When do you think this podcast is going to come out? Ooh, hold on. I can tell you. It will okay. be about a month but three weeks to a month i think i'm just trying to okay what. all right because i'll 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 tell you <laughs> Ooh, and it will, it'll be out <laughs> i can always push it back a week or two if you need to so of course I, I so of course i have my own practice here um my, uh, right now my handle is laura anderson therapy it's going to be changing and you'll hear why. Well, Ooh. first of all, because I'm going to be getting my PhD and it will definitely say Dr. Laura that Anderson. That <laughs> took time and money and we will be representing that yes. on the screen. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I get that. I get that. Yeah. So um, so probably by the time this airs, it'll still be Laura Anderson therapy. But if it's not, check Dr. Period Laura Anderson and that Ooh. will be my handle. Um, I already have it reserved. Um, nice. So- Instagram is the best place to find me, of course. Um, I I try to post every day. I post about a variety of trauma topics, but a lot about purity culture, religion, religious trauma, deconstruction, all of those sorts of things. Of course, you can also find me through the Religious Trauma Institute. Really pumped our website. Probably by the time this podcast drops, we'll have our website up, ready, done. Amazing. Um, And just like uh, Brian and I were going through it yesterday, and it's just so exciting to like see things materialized. Um, But the project I think I'm most excited about is, uh, as I've kind of referenced throughout this podcast, is I have a quite extensive waiting list. And I am great with my boundaries. I don't feel like I need to take on more clients, but um, have the stress of roughly four years worth of clients hanging out there saying, I want to work with you. I I want to work with all of them, but I can't. And and it's only growing, which is wonderful on a business perspective, but on a human to human level, I want to do more. Sure. So I am opening an online therapeutic coaching practice uh, called the Center for Trauma Resolution and Recovery. 
and we are specializing mostly in religious trauma and uh, all kinds of trauma, but religious trauma is, is where, um, where we will be specializing in some of your favorite deconstruction therapists. Um, I am hiring, which is super pumped. I'm like wow. so pumped about this. Um, yeah, so we are all licensed uh, clinicians who will be operating instead as coaches, which will allow us to see clients from anywhere in Across the world. The board. Um, and so our, all of our marketing and policies, it's all in line with coaching. It's just that we have a therapeutic background and access to those skills. And I am super pumped. Um, I believe that we'll... Uh, um, by the time this podcast drops, there will be advertising and marketing done for it. Uh, the clients that are currently on my waiting list are going to get first priority because some of them have been waiting quite a long time, Right. but it will be open for the public. And so, um, that I think, um, wonderful. at this point I have seven other people that I'm hiring that will be starting with me day one. And I'm always looking for new, uh, I'm calling them practitioners, uh, to be working with. And um, really the goal is to be able to offer accessible, effective care for people that are wanting to work through trauma, specifically religious trauma. We'll be able to offer some sliding scale spots, support groups, you know, the, the whole works, but I'm like really pumped about it. So this is my dream come true beyond words, because Good. I tell you literally five, six, 10 times a day, I'm talk yeah. to people that need to talk to someone yeah. that's trauma-informed and and, yeah. and it's hard you know there's great resources out there kind of pointing you roughly in the right direction but yeah. it's hard especially for americans where you're limited by state and other components and yeah i'm so excited so yeah. how, how are people going to be able to find that is there going to be an easy way yes you can just go to sorry um you can go to trauma resolution and recovery.com um or our instagram page is is the same uh same name trauma resolution and recovery um, so yeah, there'll be a website. You can search, you can look at all the different practitioners, um, what they're specializing in. I've got an excellent assistant who is also a wonderful deconstruction person on from Instagram. And, um, yeah, we are, we'll, we'll be opening the process to start getting people like pre-screening appointments and getting them connected with their practitioners and, getting all of that set up. So I am super pumped. And, and if anybody hearing this is, is a licensed clinician wanting to work in that capacity, mm. I have a hunch that the first problem we're going to encounter is not enough clinicians, not enough practitioners. Oh, I was going to say, when this pod comes out and once you're officially launched, I yeah. will easily be sending 20 to 30 people a week to you. <laughs> Good Lord. I'm not even joking. Okay. At easily. I, yeah. I, I yeah. easily come across that. A couple yeah, hundred I, messages a day. I'm easily getting 30 that are going, I need trauma informed help. Yeah. Um, yeah. So and, and that's just it. Like, there's, it. <laughs> nothing, there's nothing else like this. And yeah. so, um, so, you know, it's funny, you know, sometimes you get that little imposter syndrome or whatever. And, and I was right. like, am I, am I over promising these practitioners of here's, here's the clients I can get you. And then I looked at my list and I looked at how many people have inquired just in the last year, which has increased for me yeah. over 500%. And I was like, and, and that's just, that's me marketing my practice. Like, I think yeah. that, yeah. I think that everybody will be as full as they want to be on that first day that yeah, we're open I have no doubt. and we're going to need more clinicians. So, yeah. yeah. Well, so, if, if you do need any help getting the word out there as well, like yeah. I am so happy to like connect yeah. with other people in this space and say, look, these guys are doing this. You need to let these need to be a go-to place it. for people to, because yeah. I think that's so important. And it's so important that yeah. we find people that, 
you know, I, I trust you and Brian so much in what you're doing in the Reclamation Collective, guys. You know, They're so wonderful. Say girls, really, but yeah, you know, yeah. amazing. I'm, I'm so bad at saying guys. I need, I'm, I'm trying to stop it and at least when I say it, notice it. But yeah. oh, man. Um, yeah. It's at yeah. least, you know, dudes. I used to be dudes when I lived in California. So, I mean, you know, I think <laughs> guys, go. is guys better than dudes? I do. It just feels terrible. I don't know. <laughs> um, but no, that that is so exciting to me. I'm really, really excited. And yeah. and I guess, you know, you're looking for people that are going to be able to come on board as well as practitioners. Um, mm-hmm. What yeah. kind of backgrounds people need for that? Because I know that you guys, again, guys, um, <laughs> Yeah, right. uh, but with the with the RTI, you guys have been looking to try and help um, people kind of get trained in that area, yeah. you know, and 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 do that. You know, if people are, because I get this question a lot yeah. as well. People going, "How do I begin?" And I send them your way, so I'm sure that you eventually get them at some point. But mm-hmm. how do I begin this process of, you know, diverging and, and specializing within an area of, yeah probably complex PTSD predominantly, yes. but yes. maybe even yes. more specifically informing myself about religion and how that works. Um, yeah. Is that something that people can do without particularly specialist training? They, they can start that process quite easily? Or yeah. do, are you looking specifically for people that are like, no, we already have like a whole bunch of training in this area? Yeah. So, so specifically for me and also for the Re- Religious Trauma Institute, I think the general answer is no. So the way that Brian and I operate <clears throat> is that religious trauma is trauma. Like I said earlier, just like sexual trauma is trauma, developmental sure, trauma sure. is trauma. So when we look at it from that perspective, that actually gives us so many more resources, more modalities, information, research that we already have access to that we can then just like tweak little bits and pieces to say, hey, this piece is unique to religious trauma. So just like um, somebody who's suffering trauma from war may have some different impacts than some a sexual trauma survivor, we just mm. tweak it a little bit, right? There's going to be a lot of overlap and, and like almost 100% similarity in terms of how we process that through our body. Right. But then like those other little consequences yeah, like th- that's where we tweak it. And so really for Brian and I, um, and, and then for my center as well, I'm looking for people that are passionate about working with religious trauma and are at the very least trauma-informed, but probably have some training in trauma as sure. well. One of the things that I'm doing with my practitioners is, you know, like we're meeting on a bi-monthly basis, or is that twice a month? Yeah, twice a month to do group consultations specifically for learning more about religious trauma, case conceptualization, whatever else resources that they need. We'll be working with the Religious Trauma Institute to do trainings and whatnot. In terms of what the Religious Trauma Institute is looking for also is those same practitioner or you know clinicians um, that are going, I, I kind of know how to do this work or I'm interested in it. I just, I don't know spe- the specifics of religious trauma. And so sure. that's our goal then is, is to be able to kind of do all the nuances and complexity with resolution and reco- recovery as it pertains to religious trauma. So, um, you know, but anybody can, especially with RTI, anybody can, can do those trainings. Um, you can be a non clinician, you, you'd be a survivor of religious trauma and, and you're welcome to do some of those trainings. So, yeah, I mean, we have kind of those ideal kind of who it'll work best for. Um, but it, it'll be accessible to pretty much anybody in terms of religious trauma institute. 
Yeah. That's amazing. I, I just yeah. love that you are, you're plugging all these holes everywhere because I, I am <laughs> someone that deals with the holes every day and I'm going, yes. I have none of the skills required to fix any yeah. of these things. All it's I just see so is much. all the holes. <laughs> so um, it's so yeah. exciting to see uh, um, all these things, um, you know, people coming out of nowhere and going, hey, we've figured yes. some options out and we're here to help like that. Gosh, that's exciting! It's really, uh, it's really encouraging. It's very hope. Hope. It fills me with hope. You know, it's very yes. hope-filled kind oh, of thing of, of realizing. Yeah. Gosh, there's so mm. many people struggling yeah. in in so many ways that feels very overwhelming. You know, anyone that's got friends with trauma, you know, maybe themselves have worked with trauma. Yeah. This is heavy. I mean, it's hard. Mm. It's it's really painful to walk through and, and deal with. And you know, I mean, I, I thinking of sitting on a list, going, "Gosh, I I found one person." And I have to no. sit on a list and, and yeah. then I start to say, shame on you for putting them on. No, of course yeah. no. not. Like, duh. But like, no. it's just like the thought of like, there's so few oh. options for some people, right? They just yeah. haven't come yeah. across as many options. Like, no, exactly. I'm stuck. I really am. Yeah. So thank you so much. I, I really appreciate your time. I know we've gone on for ages now. So uh, that's okay. wonderful. But and we'll have you on again at some point. I'm sure to have a chat. Maybe we have you and Brian on at some point uh, specifically. We can, we can yeah. talk all sorts of new things. And I know yeah. that- you know, with you working on your research, I'd love to explore that a bit more and we, we could go into Absolutely. that. And, yeah. Um, but yeah, like this has been really fun. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. It's so good to be here. I love the work that you're doing. I mean, Brian, I was talking to Brian yesterday. I was like, my days were all messed up and because we were talking about, hey, remember, put Phil's deconstruction network on this page, you know, for resources or whatever. Mm. And I was like, oh, I'm talking with Phil tomorrow night and uh <laughs> yeah. like, oh, i'm so glad that you are this is so great so we are big fans of you and oh, everything yeah. you're doing and i think you're just what you're adding into this conversation and the resources you're providing is so incredible and so needed you. you've got this community and resources and doing it for free and like thank you thank you oh, that thank you very much lot. well it's it's great to meet people that um are in the same space doing wonderful things and uh even better when they say nice things about me that's wonderful <laughs> so, well, <laughs> thank you very much that, so yeah <laughs> awesome well laura thank you so much go in and enjoy your food i know you said uh, the only thing i've got to do is go I i've kept you from that food for it's, two and a half no, hours now so <laughs> it is all good. and i'm sure your dog is excited to go and stretch its legs and go for a wonder so yeah she's looking at me like it's my dinner time too so. yeah absolutely well i am so sorry <laughs> awesome well it's been yeah. great to talk I'll, I'll i'll let you know when it goes live i think it's going to be around the first week in april or so give or take um, okay I'll, all right I'll, I'll run it by you and, and if yeah. we need to push it a week or so as well okay. we can do that so yeah. yeah the biggest thing is as long as our website is up that's what we're waiting for let's time it for that as well so yeah. like, if it so, looks like that's going to go back i can hold on to this okay. for a month like I, okay. none of it is particularly time sensitive except for okay it comes at a helpful time for you so okay yeah, we'll i will that. check with my web developer and see she has a very like hard date in mind so it. i will um i'll let you know what that is and, and i love great. people with hard dates i'm terrible at hard dates i set hard dates and just plow right past them but yeah that's, that's a good thing to have in your life all right well love you laura i'll catch you later yeah sounds right, good have bye. a rest of your day bye-bye Alrighty, that was Laura Anderson, everyone, and I hope you enjoyed that. It was nice to have a, a longer podcast again. It's been a while since we've um, been able to go into such depth with someone, um, and so I know for me, I love that. Um, uh, and so I don't know if you love it or not, but I hope you do because I'm going to be uh, doing more and more um, longer form podcasts again. I know that we've had a few that have been about an hour and a half or so. 
Um, but I just think we get into so much more meat when there's a bit more time. Um, anyway, I really hope that you enjoyed that. I encourage you to go and follow Laura over on Instagram. It's Laura Anderson Therapy. Um, make sure you follow the Religious Trauma Institute. And of course, we have now officially the Center for Trauma Resolution and Recovery, which you can make sure you go check out at traumaresolutionandrecovery.com. Um, I'm sure that that will have um, an Instagram and everything associated with it at some point. Um, let me just see if I can find it. Uh, it is the same deal. So it's trauma resolution and recovery. Um, and so make sure that you are following that as well. Um, if you love this episode, I'm sure you did. If you got this far through, shoot a message to Laura. Let her know that you appreciated this. Um, let her know what you appreciated. I'm sure she would appreciate all the positive feedback and encouragement. It's always nice when you're a guest to hear that um, people loved what you had to say and, and, and got something out of it. And, and I know that most of you will have got something out of this that will um, have helped you in your navigating your own journey of faith, your own journey of, of trauma and, and healing. Um, and so by all means, shoot her a message on Instagram. I'm sure she would love to hear from you. Um, and yes, if you need to pursue some sort of uh, trauma work, whether that be uh, therapy or coaching, obviously there's a c complexity of which state you're in and things like that. Um, but I would encourage you strongly to check out the, the Center for Trauma uh, Resolution and Recovery as well. It looks like that's an amazing group of people um, that are working closely with Laura and, and that just is, is going to be an amazing resource for so many. Uh, I'd really encourage you to check that out. I'm going to check that out. Um, and so, yeah, do so. All right. That's enough from me. As I said at the beginning, and I always say, and you're probably getting sick hearing about it, but I know some of you hear about it and never do it. Check out the deconstructionnetwork.com. If you're feeling lonely and isolated in this process, there are thousands of people around the world that are on the deconstructionnetwork.com that are going through their own process of deconstruction. It means so much to be able to process this journey with other people that are going through it, have been through it, know what it's like to go through this radical shift. You know, it's it's one thing to have friends that support you in this, it's a whole other thing to have friends that get it um, and have done it themselves or are going through it themselves. And so I'd encourage you, make use of that resource. It's completely free and, and it really has helped so many. I love hearing from those of you that have connected with other people. Um, by all means, send me selfies and, and messages, letting me know if you connect with someone, that would make me feel um, wonderful. I just love knowing that I'm helping people um, connect and, and, and go through this process in a, in a healthier and easier way. Um, so please, by all means, do that. If you want to support what I'm doing, as I said at the beginning, you can become a patron over at patreon.com slash phildrysdale or phildrysdale.com slash partner. Um, a gift as little as five bucks a month makes a huge difference. It allows me to pay my bills. Um, I don't live on much at all. I've made that decision, uh, you know, very early on that I would not do this for money, that I would make sure that this is a free resource to help people that are going through this. So many people have been burned through Christians that are out there for their money and for fame and success. And, and I just never wanted this to be about that. So I want to make sure that this is always a free resource that people always have access to me. Um, but it does take full time. It's, it's a good 60 hours a week I put into this. I can't afford to uh, work anywhere else and make an income. And so it is solely through the generosity of people like yourself that I can pay the bills. And so if you'd like to support what I'm doing, if you believe in this mission of helping people that are going through this very difficult process of deconstruction, 
Um, your support would mean the world. As a thank you, you get access to a private discussion group. Um, we talk about all kinds of amazing things over there. We talk about, gosh, we talk about trauma. We talk about deconstructing. We talk about different um, faiths and spiritualities and different things that we explore together. We talk about what it's like to parent as we deconstruct or how to have uh, healthy relationships with our partners or our kids or um, our family as we deconstruct and, and things like that. Um, and we also just talk about our hobbies. You know, there's people that are into woodwork or climbing or uh, crocheting and we talk about all sorts of great stuff. Um, and so we'd love to see you over there. We'd love to have you as part of our intimate community we do video calls and voice calls and stuff quite regularly as a group um and so yeah there's, there's a lot of perks um if you want to support what i'm doing but if you aren't able to there's never any need either i'm always here please message me dm me on instagram i'm phil drysdale you can connect with me anytime and i'm here for you to support you in any way i can um it, it means so much to me that you are not alone in this journey that you have someone that can support you in this journey um, and so please do not hesitate if you need someone to talk to and you don't have someone to talk to. Um, I'm almost here. All right. That's enough from me. I will see you next week uh, for another episode. And until then, I hope you're doing well. I hope you are enjoying life and I love you all. Peace.